Well, hello everyone and welcome back to Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host Tim and joining me in a few moments will be my sister Catherine for our discussion of Wonder Woman 84. Where we left off last time, Diana had just been identified as a very, very lonely Amazon in the downtown wilds of Washington, D.C. in the 1980s. We'll pick up there and continue the discussion. Okay, so um, Diana is alone. She sees a plane, Steve Trevor flew biplanes, I, I don't know, whatever. Yeah. And um, she's lonely, right? So we've, we've established that Wonder Woman is alone in this era of 1980s success. But we then are quickly introduced to Barbara Minerva. And I have issues with the bridge scene in which she is introduced because uh, she's shown walking to work. She is striding confidently across one of Washington, D.C.'s mini bridges. And we get... Again, this is where the movie's implementation of 80s setting sort of falls apart, right? Because it's a bridge, and they're walking across it, and we get, like, joggers in super short shorts, a man on a, like, banana seat bicycle in a suit, someone roller skating and then Barbara. Right. Yeah. And it just feels like the most somebody talked to a production designer and said, eighties, please. It, it, and, it, and then they just kind of like came up with something. It just, it felt very artificial. I drove, to me. And this I had the most appropriate commute this morning. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. It was just, it was so consistent with the values of the 1980s. And, um, I, I do love, <sighs> For the most part, I like Kristen Wiig's character. I, I like her introduction here, but what we find very quickly is that it is falling upon a classic, honestly, a classic DC villain trope, which is your villain is introduced as a homely, glasses-wearing sort of screw-up that your main character, the cool character, takes some measure of pity on. Batman Forever did this. This is Jim Carrey in Batman Forever. This is Poison Ivy in Batman yep. and Robin. This is Jamie Foxx in Amazing Spider-Man 2. Mm-hmm. Right? Like this, this is the same approach to helping us understand this character, right? It's it's a tropey Hollywood thing to do, right? It's it's she's all that. And it's a complete waste of Kristen Wig as a talent. Yeah, I I really don't know um, why we needed this because we really only see her in this state for three scenes. When I four, heard maybe. that she was going, that she was in the movie, I was like, well, that could be interesting. You know, it could be a little funnier. She she'll be able to do some really cool villain quips. She might be really great in that role. But then mm -hmm. I thought it'll be fun to see her do something a little bit more dangerous and darker. Um, yeah, because I love when comedic actors flex like that. I think comedic actors actually provide some of the most interesting dramatic beats um so i i was really looking forward to her treatment in the movie and it makes me sad that it was all diminished into an 80s movie trope um mm -hmm. especially given that it was an opportunity to show an older woman in hollywood doing an action role doing a, a big budget blockbuster kind of um, performance yeah. because Kristen Wiig is 47 years old 
And mm-hmm. that's, that's a big deal for me because I don't see anyone over the age of 25 unless you're a male actor. You know, you can be Tom Cruise and, and push in 60 and they'll still put you next to a 25 year old woman. But I was really yeah. excited to see like, oh, Kristen Wiig looking hot. She's going to look hot as Cheetah and they're going to make her look good. And, and it's going to prove to everybody that age really is just a number and it is about your acting chops. And instead, they kind of went out of their way to make her look homely and dumpy. And then when they have hot Cheetah later in the film, she's mascara smeared and haggard. Right, um, we never get that like pleasing interstitial stage where we see her. She's still Barbara, but she's transitioning into this. Like we, she really she just never has flips, her Diana moment, you know? and yeah. that was like, okay, you're not even doing the trope correctly anymore. Um, right. so I was very put out with this. I was hoping that this character would be different, and it would be more of a. She would feel like more of a, a contender with Diana, but it, it really just feels like she's all that. Yeah. And um, I, I will say that they do some interesting things. Like I, I like that wig is, is constantly putting herself out there, right? She asks Diana to lunch, like, Hey, you're cool. Would you go to lunch with me? And, I was and then that unfortunately puts Diana in this advice. awkward place. Whereas Diana turns her down, which again, doesn't make sense. No. I I almost feel like the scene of her being forlorn and alone was inserted. It was shot later and inserted into this film to justify the fact that she just straight up turns Kristen Wiig down. Because it doesn't make sense. An Amazonian goddess who values the company of women would surround herself with strong, cool women all the time, like other people she works with, you know? Yeah. Especially somebody who seems capable and new, like she basically gets a rundown of her credentials right at their first meeting, which means exposition-y as hell, but whatever. But it just, it made no sense. And it, to me, it serves the purpose of, of also pitting women against each other, which I don't like as a trope in anything. I don't think that we should be encouraging the whole you're beautiful and perfect and I'm jealous of you. We need to stop that. Um, I understand that it's there to motivate her villainy, but I feel like there could have been other motivations. There could have been other things in her life that are maybe deeper than just Diana's prettier than me. Right. Um, That was so insulting. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like it's not necessarily wrong to have Diana be this sort of aspirational figure that another woman would see and say oh you know like i really admire her she's obviously successful and seems very put together like you know in a but if you're gonna make it an obsession make it like the edward nigma obsession where he was totally creepy about bruce wayne not this whole bitter ugly girl it's the bitter ugly girl and as a probably bitter ugly girl myself i really have a problem with how that's portrayed in movies because it's just it's not realistic, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's, and it, it strips this film of what I had hoped would be its, its core sort of central component, which was the development of a friendship between these two women that would sour based on differing goals and then lead to a conflict that would establish them as 
nemeses forever. Yeah. That's what I hoped for. And that is not, unfortunately, what I got. I got a character who was obsessed, marginally, though it may be, with another character, wished desperately to be them, became them. In becoming them, they sacrifice everything about themselves that matters, and then are desperate to hold on to that false version of themselves for reasons that are heretofore unexplained. And I, like, I wanted this to be a movie where Diana and Barbara actually sort of go after the world together for a bit and throwing them together on this project of identifying the strange artifacts seemed like a good way for them to bond. I kind of thought that the and again, like, stone was going to be the two of them arguing about how it should be used. And then we have the creation of Cheetah. I really thought that's how it was going to go. I mean, all signs pointed to to yes until Pedro Pascal showed up. Yeah, I, I find <laughs> it interesting that the wishes that define both of these characters in this film were made before they knew what the wish stone was. Yeah. They were made just based on, oh, here's a thing that I think would be cool. And I think right? that and there that, was no intentionality to it. It was all accidental. And that undermines the film's core message. Because we can't help what we want. We can't help what we wish. And the movie is saying that we should. But how could they have helped? How could Diana have helped that moment that she was holding the dreamstone when she wished to have Steve back in her life? Right. Like that's, yeah, I mean, she didn't know what was going to happen. She was just holding the stone and happened to think, oh, man, it'd be great if I could have Steve back again. And it's again, it's it, it feels like a series of plot lines that were just loosely constructed to put characters into position to have them do specific yeah. things that had already been pre by a special effects house. <laughs> and and it's so obvious here. Because the characters' actions in most circumstances are entirely unmotivated. Like, their motivations are, are mostly unclear, and then the only ones that were given generally aren't enough to justify the actions the characters take. So, but whatever. So, you know, they, they touch the wish stone, they're talking about it, how it's valueless and worthless, but, you know, apparently it has these powers or potential powers. The... The guy wishes. <laughs> okay, so I've seen a, f a couple of posts that have gone through and tried to articulate every wish that's made in this film and its its resultant thing. Because one of the big problems that people have with this movie is that the mechanics of the wish stone, the dream stone, are really unclear, like really unclear. Um, it's it's a monkey's paw, which I'll admit, as I was watching, when I realized that that's what the movie was going to be. Um, you know, careful what you wish for. You never know what the consequences will be. I I actually closed my eyes and sighed, and I was like, damn it. Because Wishstone shit. Okay, superhero movies are already really, and I don't want to, this is going to sound really reductive as someone who has never done this professionally, but superhero movies and superhero stories in general are already easy to write because mm -hmm. you can literally write your superhero a power that will get them out of it. Sure. Right. Like good superhero stories understand the powers of the protagonist and then write their stories to exploit those and then give them the chance. Right. So really good example for this is Iron Man 3. Right. So Iron Man 3, a lot of people hated because it didn't have a lot of Iron Man in it. 
and generally that's a problem I have too, right? Like I, I loathe Batman Returns because Batman isn't in that movie. It's a Christopher Walken, Michelle Pfeiffer movie that just so happens to have Batman in it. It's also a terrible movie, so. It's just not very good. You're fine there. <laughs> um, and hate is a strong word. It's it's still one of those like foundational movie experiences in oh, my childhood, but it's, it's whatever. Um, and that's my issue with it. But Iron Man 3 takes him out of the suit so that you can see that the suit is an extension of the dude, right? The dude is the hero. The suit lets him be heroic. And that's a great choice. That was the one with the little kid, right? Yes. Um, The other thing that it allows him to do is that it takes Tony's obsession with being Iron Man and shrouding himself in Iron Man suits and then makes that the cathartic action of the final film, of the final of the finale of the film, as he blows up all those suits and destroys them all to save his friends and America, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but like it's it's one of those things like we understand what Tony Stark is good at building Iron Man suits. We're going to take that skill and we are going to tie the execution of that skill to his successful overcoming at the end. Right. That's what good superhero movies do. This movie doesn't do that. And none of the powers or skills or abilities that the characters have really have any bearing on anything that they do in the film. And it's it's very strange because it means that they fundamentally didn't understand who these characters are or what these characters are about yeah. um, beyond the most surface level. It's, it's almost like, have you watched any of the new uh, Star Trek Picard series on CBS All Access? I have not because i am afraid that i will cringe out of my own body and into another universe (laughs) there are elements of it that are really good right like i i don't i did not hate it i think it spirals out of control at the end and just goes places that are like what why why are you doing this why would you tell this story with these characters but the problem with that series is that its understanding of picard as a character is based on what i would consider a cursory glance of next generation memes um i mean we're writing like, star trek based on what people think of star trek memes not right. not actual episodes <laughs> right and because here's the thing uh picard in in the next generation and people have made this point this is not an original point but picard in the next generation is an asshole yeah all like, the time. he's he uncompromising a, he, and rude he's a career military officer with no family no desire for a family who has made significant choices that have made him a powerful figure in Starfleet. And the, the show rejoices in pushing him out of that box, but that is the box that he is in, right? Like, so, and, and this will be, this will explain everything, right? So one of our favorite episodes, and I know, you know, the episode is when <laughs> Picard becomes stuck in an elevator with children. Yep. <laughs> and, Picard famously hates children and young people of all kinds. Like the entire first season is pretty much Picard constantly telling Wesley Wesley Crusher that he hates him and wishes he wasn't there. (laughs) He just, he hates things that are in his way. Right. And and things that are not immediately capable of performing the function that he needs them to perform in order for him to be successful. He's James Cameron. And protect the crew. (laughs) (laughs) But so he gets stuck in an elevator with children. Right. And he is forced under a series of circumstances to work with them, bond with them. And basically it cracks him a bit 
and he understands that children can have a function yeah right they can be capable and, and you might be surprised by them if you give them a chance right it's it's an important lesson it changes nothing in the series he still doesn't like hanging around with children it's not like they become best friends it's a one-off episode that pushes against a core aspect of the character and then you go in in star trek picard the banner that they make for him at the end right the picard day banner that the kids make he has that hanging in his personal vault kept it no he wouldn't nope not in a million years right he barely he he thought that entire thing was a sham right he hated that and and in this show they have it there because it's it's trying to show but if you if all you know of picard are these like big moments from the series you would think that that would be important to him right the main the main flaw in the show um and man this is way off topic but that's okay the main flaw in the show is that it paints the relationship between picard and data as being like best friends no and picard was never best friends with data he was a valued colleague he certainly respected him and he i'm and i, I know he respected the sacrifice that he made for him at the end of star trek nemesis in in you know blowing himself up basically to to save the crew of the enterprise but to say that picard and data were like best buds like hanging out chilling with the fam it's like no not the at all closest like, you could get is maybe the bro moved at the end of first contact but that was more of a sure. duty as my captain kind of thing yeah yeah like and that's what data did like I, I would imagine from data's perspective he would consider captain picard a friend right but it's but not i the don't kirk's, think data would even consider that <laughs> yeah it's not the Kirk Spock relationship and Picard tries to turn it into the Kirk Spock relationship Blech. and it's just not. No. Um, and it's, it's very strange, but it, I, I say all that to say that this film feels the same. It feels like we have a cursory understanding of Wonder Woman as a character, where she comes from, the things she cares about. And we're only really going to hit those big notes because if we go any deeper, maybe Gal Gadot can't play them. Mm-hmm. If we go any deeper, people may not understand them because they only know Wonder Woman from this context that we've shown them. And it just, it, it, as a result, it feels very surface. This film has very little to say, and there's very little movement with any of these characters. Like at the end of this film, Wonder Woman does not feel substantially different or changed from who she is at the beginning, other than she can fly now because Steve Trevor told her that flying is really just about wind. Oh, oh god <laughs> speaking of I know, cringing I'm jumping ahead I apologize. <laughs> but so i mean you know wonder woman and, and barbara they they do go out to dinner together after they, they sort of talk about the stone um and so we, we do get a really nice scene here like the fact that this scene exists in the movie makes me want more of scenes these scenes in the movie right because it's just them at a dinner table talking about themselves barbara's like hey you know i've had lots of relationships and i've always tried to you know find somebody and diana's like oh i just had one and then you know they, they get to bond a little bit over a man like this this yeah, fails cause... the bechdel test real hard yep um because we i would have much rather seen these these two women talking about their professional lives right what's your experience with you know genealogy? that thing they have in common but no really yeah, what like all women jobs. have in common is they men's yeah they they all they just want those men um and so the then we get another like really problematic scene because Barbara walks home, which we've established she walks where she goes, which is great. It's the 80s. Everybody's power walking. 
He's got the white heads, you know. And she is accosted by a drunken man in a park. <sighs> um, is that a definite possibility in the 1980s? For sure. Yes. It's a definite possibility anytime, but it's also just like the laziest. It's so lazy. It just feels so lazy. Could we not have her one? Do we need to show that Barbara isn't physically powerful is because that's what these scenes generally are intended to do is to show that they lack some inner strength or quality, which a, I don't think Barbara needs in this film, right? I I know she's supposed to convert to Cheetah who needs power and control and blah, blah, blah. But I, I just don't know if this was the best way to communicate this idea to the audience, I, or, or at least. I would have liked to way. have seen more just day to day issues of her wanting to feel more powerful, like conversations. Like there was a moment at the very beginning when she, she was introduced where she made eye contact with a guy and he kind of, kind of started to talk to her and she was like, ha, ah, walk much? Uh, yeah, I yeah. just... And and he turned away from her, almost like she wasn't there. And I, I thought, rather than have this, you know, awkward encounter where she's suddenly very visible and it's all about her visibility, wouldn't it have been better to just really play up the invisible thing? That nobody yeah. notices Barbara, nobody sees her, nobody cares... I mean, right. there's there's something maybe more powerful and more interesting in her turn if nobody would even notice to rob her on the street. She's that insignificant and she feels that insignificant. Like right. that's a that's a much deeper and less you know, stereotypical thing to have happen to her. Right. Um so she gets accosted, you know, by a nice guy who's like, I just want to help because she's tripping in her heels, which they've already made a couple of jokes about. Um, it's it's a really uncomfortable scene. And it here is and, and I'm fine with that. Like, it's fine for these movies to have uncomfortable scenes like that's yeah. totally OK. Um, but. Ostensibly, these are films to be shared with children. Yeah. And while I, I certainly don't mind reinforcing to my daughter that you don't let anybody treat you this way and I, I will teach you how to defend yourself um against dudes who try to pull this kind of shit but she doesn't defend herself here she doesn't she's rescued yeah. now she's rescued by diana which is far better than being rescued by a man but the mechanics of the scene are basically still the same i think it would be a much stronger message again to communicate that she's jealous of Diana for other reasons. Because I I just don't see how she would come away from that experience thinking, I want to be just like her. It's right. more realistic she would come away from that experience, oh my god, I was just assaulted by a man in a park. Holy and shit. I want, I want to be able to defend myself. Yeah. And, and at some, there is a piece of me that thinks, because I, I've talked about this on another podcast but i want to say i remember a conversation in an early trailer for this and i did not do the research and go back and try and find it because this film you'd have to watch trailers um i want to say that there was a conversation because one of the things that develops with barbara is this concept of the apex predator i want to be an apex predator right i I want that came out of nowhere 
And I want to say that there was a conversation that I remember from an early trailer between her and Diana, where they were talking about powerful apex predators together, not her by herself. And wouldn't that apex predator thing have made more sense if she was jealous of Diana's, like, prowess at work and her intelligence and her strength and not just this kind of stereotypical Amazonian beauty? Like, the things that we come to expect people would be jealous about Wonder Woman. Um, Yeah. You know, why wouldn't it be this kind of shoulder pads, power suit kind of fantasy for her? I don't, I just, it feels like scene missing. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, there are a lot of, I I mean, what we're basically saying is there are a lot of better thematic and character-driven ways to get Barbara Minerva to a place where she wants to be this powerful figure, right? Well, because the very next scene shows us exactly what the movie thinks power really looks like. Right. Take off the dumpy skirt, pull your sweater dress down Show us your ass, put on your heels, and walk around. Take off your glasses. You know, I mean, if the film is attempting to reference 80s movies that did this constantly, okay. Fine. But that is not clear to the audience. No. It because the eighties stuff now it, again is getting pulled off. Like we are less and less and less like involved in that because then she immediately starts getting noticed. Now, granted, this is the dreamstone she wished, so this is the wish coming true. You know, so now she's like Diana. She's visible. She's desirable. She's but beautiful. she's sexually visible. She's not powerful <sighs> right. and visible in the way that a woman of her stature would probably want to be visible, which is professionally visible. That would make more sense. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I told you I had a lot no, to say about no, this no, no. lady. It's, it's I, I do like that when because basically immediately after she wakes up the next morning after casting her wish, she comes out. The janitor spills a bucket. She jumps up on the, th- the chair. She's got perfect balance in her heels now. Right. Like, yeah, that was good. That's good. It's whatever. Um, you know, she's she's got capabilities now. She's that was she's better a, on her feet. That was a real good Spider-Man moment. Like Tobey Maguire waking up. Mm hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And and when Maxwell Lord introduced himself, he calls her Miss Minerva. She says it's doctor, actually. Like, I, I like that. Like, that's yeah. good. Yes. Like, she she should, she, she would correct him and say, no, I, I am a doctor, not just a, a miss. Um, and so <clears throat> the whole other angle here is that she's supposed to be a zoologist. And that's obviously where, like, her understanding of apex predators comes from, which justifies her transformation into cheetah later in the film. But I also don't like that the the cheetah change is not a byproduct of this wish. Um, because, again, wishing in this film, really strange, really nebulous, really like we just need a thing to happen. So we're just going to have somebody wish for it because the monkey's paw, whatever or whatever you want to call it. It's not really the monkey's paw in this she, one because the she calls it a monkey's paw. They do, uh, but seemingly the monkey's paw for this choice is that she loses some of her humanity, which is illustrated to us by her care for the homeless man. Uh, she brings him the leftovers, and they know each other by name, so she must be a good person. And and what is the <clears throat> lesson here to to women? That is- if you want to be powerful, you have to also be terrible. Yeah. 
And and if if you become a powerful person, it means you have also given up some aspect of your humanity. It sends a message that women should be docile, they should be subservient, they should be submissive. I mean, like, I know that this is taking it very extreme and taking it, you know, in the in a direction, but it's like, is this really what you want to say in 2020? Did you think right. people would like this? <laughs> yeah. Is this really the message about, you know, empowerment that you wanted to send? Yeah. That to become empowered, you have to sacrifice this core aspect of your being, which they've established that that's who she is. Like if she was always a terrible person, which she could have been, like she could have just been like. We should have seen like, that. Like. Bra you know, brash and like, why aren't you paying well, attention? We see that with Max dick? Lord. Max Lord is kind of a dick from the start. <clears throat> right. You know, and then we just see that get amplified. But again, I feel like at, at one point, this was Diana, the Diana and Barbara show. A version of this script exists where these two women spent a lot more time together and got to know each other a lot better to propel them to the end you know, sort of confrontation. And then there was this other thing with Maxwell Lord that was hanging out there, which DC's always had the problem with too many villains. I, I have no idea why DC cannot just put one goddamn villain in their movie and let that be the bad guy. It can and never be that. It's like they have no confidence in the strength of their villains. And so as a result, they're just piling them on. And then you see them try to do it in Justice League and they pick Steppenwolf. I know. It's like, what? Huh. Why? Why would you pick Steppenwolf of all of the villains to hang your hat on? This minor guy that works for Darkseid, who's a total doofus. Like, what would you, what are you doing? But so, I don't think Maxwell Lord needs to be in this movie. I like Pedro Pascal we a need lot. A man. I think he's a great actor. I think he's fun in this movie for what he gets to do. But this should have been the Barbara and Diana show. Quite frankly, if Pedro Pascal doesn't take his shirt off, then he doesn't even have to be in the movie. <laughs> I'm sorry, Pedro Pascal, you're a great actor. Um. Oh man. Have, well, I guess have you watched any more of The Mandalorian? I'm watching it in pieces. It's getting good. Nice. It's mm, oh, second season. Oh my goodness. Anyway, okay. Um. So so really, that's what's happening here. Is Maxwell Lord is being thrown into the mix. Uh, Diana straight up lies in this scene because she says she doesn't have a TV. And we are shown later in the film that she absolutely has a room full of TVs where she watches TV so that she can monitor the news and then go rescue people. Um, That's so Wonder Woman. Diana was, doesn't have a TV. <laughs> right. Uh, which, again, I, I, I know is a minuscule thing, but also smacks of reshoots. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just somebody not paying attention to things that are going on. But so we meet Maxwell Lord. He's obviously smarmy. He's up to, up to no good, you know, mustache twirling. He's looking for the dreamstone. And uh, he he gets to deliver his line a couple of times. And, and I will say, Pedro Pascal is good oh. as Maxwell Lord, at least whatever rendition of Maxwell Lord that they're doing. But let's talk a bit about the dreamstone, which is why he is at the Smithsonian. He's he's basically wormed his way in saying that he's going to donate a bunch of money People believe that he's wealthy, so they're giving him, you know, the grand tour. Barbara gets hooked up with him to deliver said tour. He figures out the Dreamstone is in her office and then starts working on her to get back to her office so he can get the Dreamstone. Um, later, we're just flat out told because there's... Okay. All right. Oh, God, movie. Why are you doing this to me? Um, <laughs> movie, you're okay. hurting me. <laughs> so 
he's lo- obviously looking for the dreamstone. We're told this visually. He sees the dreamstone. He reacts. We, we know that that's what he wants. But the movie can't just let it be that he knows where the dreamstone is and he wants it. And so remember, the pretense for getting this stuff to the Smithsonian is that the FBI seized it all after the jewelry heist that Wonder Woman thwarted in the mall. The FBI went in, they found all the stuff, they need to identify it so they can get it back to its rightful owners, so they give it to the Smithsonian to identify, which then Barbara takes over and she's going through. So the FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation, apparently just missed that if they had just taken the Dreamstone out of its box and looked underneath the little fuzzy stuff that was in there to keep it safe, there was a receipt that said Dreamstone for Maxwell Lord and then a price. Mm. Now, I don't know a lot about the FBI, but I know that one of the things the FBI researches frequently are, you know, crimes of a monetary nature, right? People who try to make the monies in bad ways. And I, I know a lot of the investigations that go on, they look at a lot of receipts and they even know where to look for receipts so that they can track that money down. So you're telling me that the FBI just handed all the stuff off to the Smithsonian. They didn't even bother checking it enough to find the receipt where the guy's name was literally written on it and how much he paid for it. Why? Why? Why do it? I don't understand. But anyway, so he was he was looking for it. He was buying it from the the terrible place. Uh, uh, Okay. So he wants the stone. He's manipulating Barbara, who is just eating up his advances. And Diana seems. She's obviously not buying into his shtick, right, which is fine. That's. Wonder Woman definitely wouldn't be taken in by a guy like this, so that's good. But I really don't like the way that she becomes defensive of Barbara. Yeah. Almost possessive of Barbara. Like, you know, if, if Barbara wants to go out with Max Lord, is that a bad choice? Probably. But is that Barbara's choice to make? Absolutely. And, and the we fact haven't that, really been shown that Diana would care. It's, it's weird. Yeah, like she she tries to get in between, like in this protective way that I, I think at one point may have been to sort of reinforce that, you know, people don't see Barbara as being capable. So that's why she needs to continue this change. It's it's a really awkward scene. Yeah. Um, and. If this had come a little bit later in the movie, after some kind of rapport had been established or more at least more clearly established between Gal Gadot and Kristen Wiig, which I feel like perhaps at one in one cut of this film it was, then I think it would play better because then they would be these close friends and then Diana is like, hey, good buddy, you know, I don't think you're seeing the truth of the situation here, you know, because truth is the truth according to the truth by all the truth. And and that would be different, but here it just feels creepy because they really still don't know each other and they've only hung out like once. And she's being like weird and fiercely protective of a, a woman that ostensibly doesn't need her help. Uh, I mean, that's the other part of it is they keep telling us that Barbara's a loser, but she just got a job at the Smithsonian. She's a single woman living in Washington, D.C. in the 80s. What is what is so terrible about her existence? Yeah, <laughs> so, I don't know why we're supposed to interpret her as the failure when she's really in, in many of the, the same situations. Um, 
but okay in any case like that weird scene ends and we follow maxwell lord away which so the biggest issue that this film has obviously is structural editing scene to scene to scene doesn't really work um got time jumps we've got movement we've got characters shifting around in the world yeah, there's no um, follow-through with anything where i feel like some it's connected to the previous scene in any way no and, and so we get a, basically another little vignette here we we follow maxwell lord back to his office which is deserted and uh it is apparent that that his business is failing and he is also failing but we're introduced to his son uh alistair and and Again, this is supposed to be Max Lord. We're establishing all of his motivations here, right? His motivation to be a successful businessman, his motivation to be a good father, his desire to avoid his creditors, I guess. <laughs> um, which I, I did also take offense that Simon Stagg, who is one of the major like business guy villains of the DC universe, is dropped in here just... I'm random dude that's going to be like removed from the story in 10 minutes. Uh, Cause Simon Stagg is, I mean, he's not a great villain, but he's a pretty big villain in the DC world. And, and he just gets like tossed aside here uh, in an unfortunate way. Uh, basically he's being some kind of just like, you know, I don't, I don't even know, just some eighties corporate stand in guy. Um, but really this entire scene is exposition. Maxwell Lord's business sucks. People are coming for his money because he doesn't actually have any wealth. All of his oil fields are failing. His son loves him, but also knows that he kind of hates, kind of hates him. And then they establish that his real name is Maxwell Lorenzano, I guess. So, I mean, obviously, Pedro Pascal is a Chilean actor. Uh, he is, is awesome. I mean, he's, he's wonderful. I don't know why they felt the need to, because this character now, his, his background as as a as a latino man becomes essential to his character and not in a bad way in a way that i think is is pretty fascinating but this is so far removed from the maxwell lord of the comics that i, I just kind of don't care about any of his his previous ones so now it becomes about what are they doing with this version of the character and i don't know what are what do you think of max lord um I liked the idea behind it, but, you know, it's funny, his scenes with Barbara especially reminded me a lot of Timothy Dalton's scenes with Jennifer Connelly <laughs> here. Sure. But where Timothy Dalton sort of leaned into this smarmy Casanova type and did it sort of elegantly and, and without without overwhelming the fact that we also knew he was a villain, we knew who this wasn't really who he was who he was. Um I feel like I feel like this was too much. I feel like the the caricature was just over the top. It was just too much sleaze and smarm and it overwhelmed any other chance that we had to get to know max lord as a person just outside of this kind of tv thing that he was doing all the time 
Um, and you know, if I can't connect with your villain on any level, it's just, it's not going to work. Yeah. I, I think the main thing they try to connect with people on is his relationship with his son and wanting to make him proud, which I think is a core value that most people can grasp. Um, I, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, they, they sort of reveal that he has this, this, that he's, he's Latino. He changed his name to Lord so he could theoretically pass. Uh, he's blonded out his hair, which we see a an earlier version of him later in the film where he doesn't have that. And, it, you know, I guess it's supposed to show the eroding of his ideals, right? And his willingness to sacrifice his own personal history to, to achieve American success. But we're not really but, given any any concrete look into that no it's it's all done in flashback and real quick yeah. side side sequences um but i i really you know they're dealing now with this 80s idea of passing right of like letting go of your your heritage your background and who you are to make it in america and sort of leaning into that and i it's not that the film characterizes it as a good thing but it certainly it just handles it. It doesn't, doesn't do comment. Yeah, it. it doesn't do anything with it. It doesn't comment on it in any way. And so it's almost like because you ignore this, you're sort of condoning it. Right, because now this old guy gets to make fun of him. Right? Simon Stagg is to be like, uh, Maxwell Lorenzano. And, and it's just like, yeah, so? Yeah. Right? Like, why do we have to cover again? It's just, it's again, I think a draft. All right. It, we come back to the conceit. Why is this set in 1984? Why is this an 80s movie? Right. There's, there's a version of this somewhere that was like, we want to talk about greed. We want to talk about excess. We want to talk about marginalization. I mean, we 1984, want to talk about, you know, we should be talking about the cold war. We should be talking about, you know, bigger political concerns. You've got so much that was happening in the world that we could be talking about and we could relate back to these characters. But and they all just, that just gets tossed. Yeah. Just tossed for, and not replaced with anything. Yeah. Like somebody had the idea to set this in 1980. Okay. So like the end of this film, all right, I'm just going to jump right ahead to like the find the, thankfully there is no giant blue light in the sky that Diana has to go punch. Okay. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well done, DC. You avoided it. But what sh what we have instead is some sort of device that allows you to beam particles into every television on planet Earth at the same time so that you can communicate to everybody all at once. Okay, so obviously 1984 specifically has a very specific literary tie. Yeah to a film that was all about Big Brother constantly watching you and communicating the truth to you through television. You screenplays. And this movie seems to have some pieces of it that touch upon that idea too, that also get ejected. And so I, my big issue with this movie is that it is pulling in a whole bunch of references and cultural ideas to very specific things and, and doing then doing fuck all with them. Like, nothing with them and it makes zero sense to the point where i'm just like take the 84 off of it and just call it wonder woman 2 and set it wherever you want because if you're not going to lean into it why waste your time because this is not i mean setting up a movie even marginally to be a period piece is not simple it's way more complicated 
And it should have just sort of left all that stuff. Because once they made the decision to not lean into any of it anymore, it should have just been excised from the film. But obviously they couldn't. It was too embedded at the point to do that. <clears throat> but whatever. So so Max Lord, and again, Pedro Pascal is a great actor. And the scene between him and his son where he's telling him that you're going to be proud of me one day. Like everybody, everyone, will, I think he even says like he will rue the day he walked away from me and i was like really we're going to rue the day uh in, if, in our superhero film and he will rue the day i guess that's um, that's where i i was confused on his motivations and i feel like that caricature kind of overwhelmed any real person that i was supposed to connect with um because none of those i mean those scenes were there but they didn't really land there just wasn't enough of them yeah, it's um, and and it feels like they were struggling to put situations in place to make them right. Because how long was that kid in that office? Like apparently he was just always around, right? It's just everywhere, <laughs> and it just it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so Diana discovers the receipt, and that Max Lord wanted the Dreamstone all along. Uh, after she, I guess she discovers what it is, or at least a loose understanding of what it is. And uh, then we're we're deep now into Barbara's change. Uh, so I, I do like that the first gaze, and there are many gazes in this film. We've already gotten one in the mall of all the creepy old men staring at the women doing aerobics in their tight, you know, outfits. The first one here is the the saleswoman at the store, right? And she is the first to acknowledge that Barbara really does look good, and and I like that. Um, that it's not just a dude acknowledging that Barbara's new look is is sensational. But they immediately you. undo that um, with the next scene. Yeah, the next scene takes the place of that. So, so we've got some kind of gala. I, I don't know. I, I'm not excuse familiar. Excuse for with, women to wear dresses. That's right. Uh, I'm not aware of the Smithsonian, you know, throwing these winter balls, uh, but apparently it's a thing. They and go out of their way to have all these men creepily look at and at speak Diana to Diana. And Barbara both. Yeah. And it's <sighs> why did you put that in the movie if you weren't going to do anything with it? Yeah. Um, Are you just trying to tell us this is life for Diana, and that that's the life that Barbara wants? Because something tells me it isn't. Yeah, I feel like this scene was supposed to be like you know Diana is so accustomed to the ogling. That she just ignores it. She strides right past. You know, I, I think she even has that scene later where the guy's like, no, thank. And she's just like, no, thank you. And she just keeps walking. And so then Barbara comes in and she's immediately taken by the attention. And again, and it feels like in a more competent film, <laughs> this would have been paralleled very directly so that we can see that Barbara is thriving on the attention, whereas Diana is wearied by it, perhaps. But it, it's still even still it's it's just connected gross. to this very, very bad, very outdated idea of the bitter ugly girl getting her make her glow up i mean that's yeah. that's just not that's not a proper motivation for a villain you know we i know that a lot of people place self-worth incorrectly in the way that they look that's a problem with society but i don't think there are that many people rising to the status of supervillain because of it right and then we get <laughs> So then she runs into Max Lord, who Diana keeps trying to track down, but he's like magically appearing all over the the gala, like talking to different groups and she can't track him down, which 
I guess it's worth mentioning here that Maxwell Lord doesn't have any abilities in this universe. He's just a dude, um, which is, is interesting. And he's always been like, he was, he's like a minor telepath. He can like really, he's really persuasive. Like he can get people to do what he wants in the comics. And I get the feeling there's kind of that here, but I, I was kind of hoping that they would do something with him. Like have like, like, does he have an ability to get you know that's helped him get to where he is even though that's still kind of a failure um but he talks to barbara and then he has that line really never accept the limitations of nature and and again they keep sort of pushing this idea without ringing the ding 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 bell that oh you know gotcha she's a cheetah or whatever um but it again feels like a piece of a film that had a much larger discussion about what it means to be at the top of the food chain in American society. And then just that all got kicked out. Like, we're just not going to deal with that concept because that's difficult and people don't want to hear that. I will say they, they do a good job with wig. Uh, they, I don't feel like they are. Yeah. As you mentioned, Kristen Wig is a, is a 47 year old successful actor in Hollywood. That's in the wrong hands, I think they would do a lot more than they should to try and make her look a way that is not her. And and I feel like they they made good choices with Wig in this film. I think she she looks really good. They're they're handling just her her on screen presence well. I but in the service of very little. <laughs> like, yeah, I that's the problem. I don't know. I don't I don't I think she could look much better. I actually oh, think that the well, hair. Sure and makeup and wardrobe choices are that was a huge disappointment for me because you know as i said diana gets to look fashionable and timeless which is fine wonder woman is beautiful she's a goddess that's sort of the point she's the amazonian goddess fantasy that was why she was created but aside from that kristen wick's a beautiful woman like drop dead gorgeous and they yeah. go out of her way to make her skin look kind of bad. Her makeup is kind of bad. Um, and I know that they're doing it partially for the 80s aesthetic because the hair and makeup of the 80s was kind of bad. Um, but also the fashion choices are not as flattering. Um, the lighting on her is just not as flattering as it is for Gal Gadot. And... Sure. I would have thought that given what happens to the character in the movie, that it's it's this big moment that she's suddenly as cool and as popular and as sexy as Diana, that they would have spent more time making her look as beautiful as she actually is. But I kind of feel like they took her down a peg, I, and I, I don't get it. <laughs> it feels like they're trying... Okay, so I, I was actually having a conversation with somebody about this the other day. If this is still a movie that's trying to make references to the 1980s and specific 1980s fashions, who is Kristen Wiig referencing? Yeah. The the closest thing that I could get to is like desperately seeking Susan era Madonna. Like that's the only thing that I can get to that she sort of has the same look, but it's not like the it's not like the proto punk or the post punk madonna where it's like belts everywhere and like fishnet stock i mean we'll admit we get fishnets later but um it, it feels like somebody looked at that but then just wasn't willing to go all the way into it, it but they want to make her look rough right like that's yeah. the thing i got like the the tussled hair 
like they they obviously have this idea that they want her to look more animalistic right which again i get but this phase in the story i don't think she needs to be there already you know this this should have been the moment where she looks the most like diana Mm-hmm. And there's a way to make her look animalistic and you know powerful messy and, yeah. and powerful and sexy without compromising. I don't know. One of my big things was the way that they did the makeup on her face was very bad. Yeah. Um it made the texture of her skin look made up. And Gal Gadot does not look like that for even a second in the movie. And, you know, it's no. just little stuff like that that maybe, you know, you didn't notice it but your brain did. Right. And and it's it upsets me. I Well I the other thing is did you notice the Gal Gadot's the only person at that party wearing white? Yes. Like that's just like I was like, really? You guys are gonna go there? Like she's so timeless and perfect Her that she's the only one willing to wear classic white at a at a gown at a ball and, or whatever. And we can't know? forget the purity message that's coming along with her being dedicated to one man and one man only. Like let's sure. not yeah. let's not ignore that Diana oh, is chaste. Can we? Can we? Can we? I that? can't. I just can't. Steve gave her a watch, not a purity oh ring. Oh my Come god! On. Which she proudly displays. I know the the metaphors are bad. I, I mean, uh, at some point, I think it's just as simple as she's wearing white and Barb is wearing black, and it's you know some costume designer being like, ah, oh, they're opposites. You see. But you but know, at these this point in the film, make they millions aren't. of dollars. They're friends. They're making it, these decisions on purpose. You know, I just I can't say it's a mistake after a while. I can't say yeah. it was something else all the time. But all of that gets completely sidelined, however, when Diana at this party that is seemingly close to the public is approached by a random dude that we've never seen before, who looks vaguely Chris Pinish and probably was hired off of an ad or, or a casting call that said, we need someone who looks vaguely Chris Pinish. And, and that's why he got the job. Uh, Cause I think all the guys done is Hallmark movies. Yeah. I've but, seen him in a couple of things, but I don't, I don't know his name. But so we get this, uh, oh God, I don't even know where to start with this man. Oh, all right. So Diana's wish was to have Steve Trevor back. That's what she wants. Okay. And so this movie, which is about literal dreams and wishes being, made true later we'll see walls appear from nowhere we will see missiles evaporate from the sky but with steve trevor he can't just be reincorporated into the world bodily nope in this case the spirit of steve trevor his soul so again the film seems to have a thought about the eternal soul is reincorporated into a random dude who oh God, I just so basically Steve Trevor is back but it's not Steve Trevor it's this other guy but since Gal Gadot knows it's Steve Trevor she only see, sees Steve Trevor and so therefore we only see Steve Trevor which means even though that, it's actually this other dude which means that, that you can look you can look schlubby and not at all good enough to go out with wonder woman and wonder woman will still be in love with you fellas you'll still see chris pine when she looks at you um (laughs) that's the fantasy the mechanics of this are so strange 
that again it feels like it was pulled from a different plot line that had a different goal like there's no reason to do this uh i did listen to one person who said that was probably done because if steve trevor just materialized as as if from nowhere he's not going to have id he's not going to have clothes he's probably going to wind up in like a mental institution or something which would have been funny. And, I would have watched. Which would have been funny, but sh- then we would have had to take ten minutes for Wonder Woman to like get him out of the institution in some way, and we don't have time for that. So instead, we do this, where he can just pop into this dude's body, eat some pop tarts, live in his apartment for a couple of days, and then figure out that Diana's in the world and go find her. Which I, I guess I get, but it really this just feels excised from some other story, yeah. right? Like. Like this was going to be a larger thing. Maybe Diana went on a date with that guy earlier in a different version of the story. And then Steve gets like transported into that guy. So now she's like out of struggle. Do I like this guy? Do I like Steve? It seems like there's just other stuff that was potentially happening here. And then they just had it and they just ran with it because it would make sense if the monkey's paw of Steve Trevor returning was that well, if you want to have Steve, you're basically going to kill this other dude because his life will be over. Right. Cause that's the, the, the awkward conversation that I had to have with my kids after this was well, what happened to that guy while he was Steve Trevor and <laughs> Diana was with him. And I, I looked at them and I said, I don't know. But they were like, but didn't they, Maybe my daughter's like, like being didn't, didn't they? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, they did. And that means that that random dude has now had sex with wonder woman. And it's just it's just the most awkward and strange thing. But so Steve Trevor's back. He's in the body of another dude. Diana sees him as Steve, even though it's not Steve. Cue funny 80s jokes about parachute pants. Ad nauseum, right? And I'll be super honest. I I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because it doesn't really matter. Like, it's literally pointless to the film. It doesn't mean anything because the monkey's paw is that to have Steve back, it drains Wonder Woman of her powers, which is the film literally saying that men are Diana's kryptonite. Yeah. And it's so dumb. Yeah. On all levels. It's not just it dumb. It's insulting. <laughs> it's not even it's not even an exchange. It's just like she gets weaker over time as Steve exists. It, it's so unexplained. Like, it just doesn't make sense. But... I will say that Chris Pine is very good at gawping into space and making it look like he's amazed to see things because he's a good he's a good actor. And so when he stares into the sky and says, is that a plane? And he's like, wow. And then he looks at a trash can and he goes like, wow. And then he looks at art and he goes, wow, it's it's wonderful. And he's very engaging and it's easily the funniest part of the film. And some of the jokes do land. But my God, this whole thing just is so weird when you think about it. And it's so strange. Like for a woman that has claimed to just, I'm going to be alone. I'm okay with myself. I may not like it, but this is my lot in life. Blah, blah, blah. The way that she just runs into his arms, no questions asked, is so. The all I see is you line made me physically sick. I thought I was going to vomit when she was saying that. Um, it's there's just so much wrong with the entire concept and and how it it dismisses 
everything. I, I, I can't even, I can't, I can't. It's just, it's terrible. It was really, really terrible. It's a character that should not have been in the movie and exists just to have a man. <laughs> it's like, we don't have enough men in this movie. Yeah, we don't have enough enough people. We need a male it's, perspective here. Again, I feel like it's a little bit of tick in the box. You know, Chris Pine was in the first movie. He needs to be in this movie. Um, but it seems like, again, you could have written this in in a bunch of different ways. Like you could have had Steve come back in a bunch of different ways. And I, mm, I just don't know. It's it's just strange. It's a really strange choice. It doesn't really help the movie. It ends up hurting the movie more than it helps because um, the comedy that Chris Pine brings to it is certainly not enough to offset the absolute insane weirdness of having him back in the film in this fashion. And they could have generated the same type of comedy if they had done things with Barbara a little bit. With better. Barbara. Mm-hmm. Yep. Easily. You know, you had a comedic actress there. Why didn't you use her? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the fact that Kristen Wiig really only gets a couple of funny moments in this film is is really a travesty because she's obviously so, so capable of delivering. Um, but she just doesn't get the chance. She doesn't get that opportunity. Um, we do get, you know, when she wakes up uh, after her, her wish, you know, she's ripping the door off of the uh, refrigerator and, and all of that kind of stuff. Those are some good moments. Um, but... I guess the the other thing we're shown is finally Maxwell Lord's plan, why he wanted the Dreamstone in the first place. And that, of course, was to turn himself into the Dreamstone. Okay, so he wishes. And and somebody I, I will not claim this, but it was a good comparison that uh, the, the individual in the other podcast made that he's basically Jafar from the end of Aladdin. Uh, I'm going to become the genie and therefore have all the power. And it's, it's so simple and kind of dumb, but he, he makes himself into the dreamstone. The dreamstone evaporates and he becomes the dreamstone. So now he is the one who can grant wishes, but whereas the dreamstone just sort of, I guess, I guess randomly assigned, a consequence to your wish now he has the ability to determine the consequence of your wish he yeah. actively chooses what he is going to take from you in order for your wish to become true so the remainder of the movie has pedro pascal basically running up to people grabbing them by the hands or the shoulders <laughs> saying don't you wish for this most of them saying well sure and then him saying, now I have your car. <laughs> and I'm going to start or, doing that. That's how I want to live my life. I'm I mean, going to take what just, I want. It's just so weird. And then when somebody says, oh, I don't have that thing anymore. He says, well, I'll take this instead. And it's just, it's unexplained. There's no sense or understanding of the rules of it. You know, this isn't this the, the genie situation with, uh, you know, you get three and nothing else, you know, that it's just whatever. And it. I generally try not to in comic book movies, get bogged down in this kind of minutia. But the problem is, is that this minutia is the plot of the film. It's the entire movie. 
yeah, like everything else that happens in this film depends upon how this works. And we are not told how it works at all. So it's it's just so strange. Um, so it, we we kind of leave Lord for a while. We don't follow him for a bit. Uh, we do get a again. It's a funny scene with Kristen Wiig, you know, testing her strength. These are these are fun superhero scenes. They're in lots and lots of movies. Yeah. You know, test your strength, lift a heavy thing. You know, do a thing you can't exp- you didn't think you could do before. I expect to see those things. Yeah, they're they're expected. They're fine. Wig acts them well. They pass without incident. I mean, that's really all you can say. They they pass without incident. <laughs> the movie passed without incident. <laughs> um. Then we get really Max's first wish. I guess, I I guess we'll just call him the Wishmaster. That's <laughs> what he is. He's he's the Wishmaster now. Um. And he shows up at Simon Stag's business to have him wish for the success of his business and then the monkey's paw that he takes for having simon stag wish that his business is successful is that he will remove him from his business <sighs> this is so dumb it doesn't have to be this hard you guys Movie's just uh, making things up now but but this is is really the remainder of what he's going to do um and he reaches cartoonish levels of yes. villainy really quickly. Yeah, it's it's very fast um, once he realizes the power that he has and the immediacy of the effect, because he gets the guy to wish and then the FBI shows up immediately to serve him with like a subpoena or something because he's going to be indicted on criminal charges. And he's like, oh, problem solved. Again, it's it's very it's it's cartoonishly s- stupid in, in how it's handled. Um, but Lord's fortunes immediately begin to reverse, right? His business is now successful. The phone's ringing off the hook. He needs to hire people. So he has his assistant wish that there were people around to hire. And then they show up and he hires them. And I, I, it's, mm, it's, if it was done differently, it would be sort of silly and kind of funny, but it's not. And it just feels weird. And I, I don't know. Um, also, and this is such a small thing, like there's the scene where all the phones are ringing because, you know, everybody wants a piece of black gold because that's what he wished. Um, you have to pay for phone lines. Yeah. Uh, phone lines are very expensive. And, Especially in the 80s. And for, for phone lines to just be ringing off the hook in an office that's been abandoned seemingly for quite some time. It, it's silly uh but again sorry so people start it's, showing up the business is growing and and he just keeps getting people to wish and we get a lot more of gal Gadot and steve trevor um they do go to the smithsonian it's it's very sweet steve sort of sees the history of aviation you know because he was there at the beginning and now he gets to see how it's changed He's the space shuttle. It's fine. You know, it's on un- But we're we're literally slowing the movie to a crawl now because it's obvious that none of the stuff. The moment I realized that Steve Trevor was a dude in another dude's body, I was like, well, there's no possible way that he can remain in the storyline. Yeah. Like he you already know how here. this is going to end. 
Like, so all of this building and all of this happiness that Diana's experiencing is all for nothing. It cannot continue. It won't. And so that goes on. And then we get a rapid series of scenes with the new Barbara Minerva, right? She's wearing black. She's, you know, if she doesn't look great, she looks confident. And so she's like holding court at the office. And she's, uh, I can I just say that I hate scenes where we come in and a character's in the middle of talking about something interesting and we're just supposed to, and we're just supposed to know that it was something interesting that was being spoken about. So like super intelligent and and everybody loved it. And they all, they're all laughing. They're like, (laughs) that's right. That's like the time I was in Cairo. (laughs) Why, why couldn't we see her legitimately standing in an auditorium delivering a fantastic speech on something that she discovered, maybe the dreamstone itself, right? Maybe she's gotten super intelligent and super smart and she did all this research on it. And she's like, Oh, this is what this is. And this is why it's important. And we, we actually get like the moment of her running class, but it's all about her sitting around and dazzling men because that's what you want. You want the ability to dazzle men in a small setting. That's really the dream of every woman. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Couldn't even make it through my own joke. Then we get another weird moment because. Okay, so when Max Lord grabbed the Dreamstone, were we not shown him placing it behind his back? As in, I am stealing this stone from this woman that I am manipulating. And then she gave it to him. And then in the scene after that, where Diana's questioning about her, uh, questioning her about it, she says that she gave it to him. So which was it? Yeah. Make up your mind, movie. This this feels like such an oversight because it's like, well, which was it? Did you give it to him and say he could take it to do his own research, or did you say no? Um, and and then he took it anyway, or is she covering for herself and saying no? I I told him to take it. Um, so uh, the weird one, uh, but in any case, they need to go check with Max Lord about everything. So they, they break into his facility. We get our first indication that Diana is, is losing her, her strength, I guess, at the very least, cause she tries to rip a lock off and it doesn't come off easily. She gets it eventually, but it's just tougher. So they go into the offices to, uh, to find Max Lord's stuff. And basically we get an, an orgy of evidence, right? Because Maxwell Lord has been so busy that he didn't even have time to clean up his office, remove the remnants of the Dreamstone, hide any of his research, nothing. So it's all just sitting there on he his desk. He also left a document on his desk called My Nefarious Plan by <laughs> Maxwell Lord. I mean, that's basically what this is, right? Because everything else that happens in this film hinges on what they find laying in this dude's office. and. This is a movie thing. I'm not going to blame the movie for that necessarily, but this this film is already not winning any points for being smart and doing this kind of shit makes it seem even dumber. Right? I mean, this this is the scene in Minority Report that James Cromwell or whatever set up that James Cromwell, uh, Max von Sydow set, or oh, Jesus, Christopher Plummer. God damn it. Um, <laughs> the villain of Minority Report. I don't even remember. I think it's <laughs> actually. Um, you know, I don't remember. 
he huh. where he sets up like like when he's framing Tom Cruise for the murder and like in the room where the murder takes place are just all these pictures and all this mm-hmm. stuff laying on the bed of like his nefarious plans. It was the evidence stuff. room. It's like that's what this is. And it's ah, <laughs> uh, it's I mean, they literally know that he's going to the Middle East because they find a plane ticket in the trash can. <laughs> it's just I, uh. how does Steve Trevor even know what a modern plane ticket looks like? Because he's the one who picks it out of the trash can. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, look at this. This looks interesting. It also, beats, just right. He's going to Cairo. The way it's, he behaves uh, is not turn of the century. <sighs> just like nitpick to the way they wrote that character. Nothing about him says that he stepped out of no. the era of World War I. And mean, he never I. even gets a golly G, right? No. <laughs> I mean, G. nothing even close. He uses the word gams at one point, but that was really a later slang term. Yeah, I don't that's think not even it was. That's not even really a timely thing. I don't know. Everything about him feels anachronistic. Terrible. Yeah, and, and, and in a bad way. I mean, it should feel anachronistic, but it's anachronistic in the wrong way. Yeah. Um. Okay. So, man. Mm, all right. Mm, okay. So then he flies they, a plane. <laughs> So they they look in his trash can. They find a plane ticket. They know they need to go to Cairo, Egypt, for reasons. And they know that Steve can't go because he doesn't have a passport, which is not necessarily true, because Steve doesn't need to have a passport because Steve is not, not Steve. Steve. Steve is this other dude. And he might have a passport that would get him on a plane, but the film check. just runs <laughs> right by that as fast as it possibly can. And they decide instead that the best plan, the best way to get to Cairo in a timely fashion or Cairo. Uh, not uh, your Southern not, Illinois not, is not showing. Cairo, <laughs> Illinois, uh, to Cairo, Egypt, is to steal a plane from the Smithsonian. And not just a plane, a plane that Steve would have absolutely no clue how to fly. No, he flew biplanes. It's very similar. They had a lot of the same stuff. They they even had buttons and switches and knobs that allowed them to adjust things like altitude and trim. Um, yes, they definitely weren't just like really simple flying machines with like one stick and some rudder pedals. Um, but yes, no, he would be... He would be lost. Be well, he has other. to ask in the movie... About radar, because you didn't right. know what radar is, and I think that's a pretty essential component to flying modern planes. Yeah, like, <laughs> I I don't doubt that a person who understood basic aviation would. Oh no! Ba- well, Howard's just basic aviation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I don't doubt that he would be able to fly a plane, and I really legitimately thought because the on the the runway were like some older like prop planes and stuff like that. I was like, okay, well maybe if they're going to fly one of those, but they don't. They get into this jet. Fighter jet. Just obnoxious. Fighter jet. Is it a fighter jet though? What is? It I don't has know what side it is. by side seats. I know. <laughs> what fighter jet has side by side seats? Well, this is more like a superhero fighter jet, <laughs> where you have I, to have your sidekick know, next like, to you. It's just so dumb, and it makes like and it makes Batman me sad because I know Patty Jenkins is is like a, a big aviation person. Like her father was a pilot. And so it's like, how did you do this? I don't even understand. But it seems like she just wanted a flying scene in the movie. And of course, this becomes their excuse to have the invisible jet. Because they can't just have it be an invisible jet. They have to have a reason for it. And so Diana instead 
is going to use the power that Zeus used to hide the mascara because she's the daughter of Zeus to make the plane invisible. Uh, she tried it on a coffee cup once, we're told. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she lost it, which is a great joke. Because <laughs> she made it invisible and then couldn't find it again. And uh, but she's, she does that to the plane. Um, yeah, this whole scene's problematic. It's not even worth discussing because the other issue is we find out that it's the 4th of July and the DC fireworks display is playing that night. That's very this convenient is, that all of these things are taking place at the same time. And, and please remember that as Barbara dropped the leftovers off to the homeless guy, she said, stay warm. Yeah, well, July in DC is one of the colder summer months. Yes, <laughs> um, when I think of, of real chill, I think of Washington, D.C., that effing swamp in July, in July. as being a real chill time. Uh, again, I think these are like different movies that somebody stitched together. <laughs> That's what they feel like, dude. Um, so they, they take off in the invisible jet. Diana's able to make it invisible. I don't really care about the mechanics of this. I didn't need it explained. I don't really care. Wonder Woman has an invisible jet. Just give her an invisible jet. What difference does it make? Yeah. Um, maybe she found it. Maybe concern. it was a gift from somebody that she saved back in the 70s. Who cares? She's an Amazonian Who goddess. Cares? I'll believe that she has a jet from some magical source or an invisible whatever. I can... That I'm fairly flexible on. <laughs> yeah, it's literally meaningless to me why, how and why she got it. It does provide some nice moments as they're like cutting through the clouds in it and stuff. It's It's neat. Again, but I didn't need all these histrionics to get the jet in the movie. Um, in any case, they they fly through the DC thing. I don't even want to get into do what a fighter, what a jet plane of that type even have enough fuel to get from Washington DC to Egypt in a single go. Where did they land? How would they? How would they refuel it? I, it It just, it doesn't, none of these things make sense. Uh, at all. Yes. And. I, uh, any, okay. So they, they needed to get to Egypt. They had an Egypt scene. They needed to use it. And in essence, what we, we wind up with is. They should not have done this and they should not have gone to this place. Uh, because their handling of Middle Eastern relations in the 1980s is real clunky and not good, and um, and they just shouldn't have done this, uh, if at all possible. And it but wasn't we, necessary because it's the 80s. We could have just done Russians. Yeah, I mean, any why, other Cold War power, just, just lean into it. Why wouldn't you um, just do Russia? Like, people love Russian bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> just don't get it. I mean, Red Dawn, uh, that one with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jim Belushi that also yeah. had red in the time. Red Heat, that's what it was. Uh, just anything with red. It was really popular. Um, But so then we get this weird conversation where Steve Trevor explains flight to an Amazonian goddess who's thousands of years old. That was um, just... Where he explains that it's easy because it's just wind and air and knowing how to catch it. Just basic aviation. Yeah, I wish he would have said that. I wish he would have said that. 
That would have I mean, been has, so much better. Again, Chris Pine is a good actor. He says, you know, it's oh, it's how you join with it, it's how you sell it, you know, all this stuff. It's it's a nice moment, which I will give this film. This film has many nice moments. Like individual moments that are played well, acted well, shot relatively well, but they do not form any kind of cohesive whole that is satisfying in any way. Um then we cut back to Cheetah, who is now researching uh, to try and uncover evidence about the Dreamstone. Seemingly still as Diana's ally, right? Like they're still on the same team, I guess. Uh, she gets hit on by another guy, and then we see her acting a little bit more aggressive, but sort of Diana-ish saying, you know, I don't need anything from you or, or anything like that. Um, but we see that she's gotten faster. Right. She's reading everything really fast. She's hyper accelerated into her intelligence. She's running and sprinting. And now she's in like a black track suit or something. And she's just, again, getting constantly hit on. Right. It's like, oh, you're so pretty. Oh, slow down, sexy. And then it's drunk guy from the beginning, of course. Right. Because in the city, Washington, D.C., you're just going to run into the same random drunk guys. Absolutely. Well, there's really just the one drunk guy. He assaults all the women in D.C. Yes, he is the DC assaulter, right? That's his job. He has a little card that he can show to the police. Just be like, hey, guys, just doing my job. Just doing, doing my business, right? Because if he didn't After do hours, it, who... this is my This is what I do. So I make a little bit of side money so I can buy the kids a nice Christmas presents, right? Um, so he doesn't remember her because she's so wildly different now that she's not wearing glasses and her Reeboks are newer. And then she does one of the most problematic things in the film. Uh, do I... Because here's the thing. Does this guy need his ass kicked, in your no, opinion? Not really, no. No. Does he deserve it? Eh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I'd have to know more about him. <laughs> My issue is, is that, given her previous experience, I think it is justifiable that she kicks his ass. Sure. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. We shouldn't necessarily feel bad about her kicking his ass so that means what this scene is supposed to be about is about scale it's not that she kicks his ass right because i cannot believe that anybody in the year 2020 would be upset that a woman who was assaulted i guess potentially assaulted the assault did not necessarily complete i don't know if anybody would be like this guy should be let off for that and he should not necessarily receive any sort of punishment for it i I don't think anybody's going to say that so now it becomes, it's not just that she punishes him. She beats the ever-living shit out of him. I mean, there's a scene where we literally see teeth fly out of his head. Yeah. Right? Like, all those little things. Are, it's not spittle. It's not spit. It's teeth. Right? She kicks his teeth out of his head. And so, it's not that what she's doing is bad. It's that she's doing it so much. And that is a really, really unclear thematic point to make. Right. And I and it does not read at all because it just seems cruel. And again, I know we're supposed to be witnessing Cheetah's change into something more violent. But it again, in in terms of building a scene to try and show the internal change that a character is going through, this ain't it, man. Like, it just ain't it. And and it. It makes me want to be sympathetic toward a guy I shouldn't be sympathetic towards or I should shouldn't necessarily want to be sympathetic towards and 
it doesn't really show me that Barbara's humanity is eroding. It just shows me that her violence is increasing. Yeah. And because those two things are not necessarily on a on a like opposing scale, right? Your your humanity lessening doesn't mean that your violence increases. Um, but then, of course, it's broken up by the homeless guy who is shocked to see Barbara, you know, beating the crap out of this guy. And she just like, mind your business. Right? So I, I don't know, man. It, to me, Kristen Wiig and Barbara Minerva are the biggest misses in this movie because she got done dirty. Yeah. In, in the story department, like her character just does not have a clear through line and basically doesn't really amount to anything. And this scene does nothing to give her like a triumphant moment, which is what I kind of felt like it should be. Because, again, at this point in the story, she's not the villain. She's not the bad guy yet. She's not even close. It's like they wanted us to see a hint of the villain she could be, but they took it just a step too far. At this where phase. I just don't, where I just don't like her anymore. Yeah, now she's and just that, unlikable. Yeah, which, and that, I know that wasn't the point. And if you write her off that way, then who cares, right? Like the point is to make me keep liking her, and still make her the villain, right? The villain that I want to like, but I can't because the actions that they're taking are bad. Um, which is sort of what they're also trying to do with Maxwell Lord, and so that that's really this movie's problem is that they want us to like both of the villains unequivocally right they just they want us to understand them well villains are cool i mean and that that's and i don't say that as someone who thinks that that is the present cultural vibe is that the bad guys are cool again mm -hmm. but not that being a bad guy is cool it's that we have to make them these sympathetic and cool people right. and it it has the result of softening their villainy um, yeah. and, and sometimes like that implies works. complexity. It works right? for villains like Magneto. That worked really, really well. In the X-Men films, yes. Um, but in this, I, I don't know. I just, it doesn't quite work. I don't know. I can't put my finger on what they're not doing. <laughs> like, well, you need to do something, but I'm not sure what. Well, a complex villain is not a bad thing. A villain who we understand their motivations and what they want is, is good right yeah. that's i mean that's thanos uh, i'm sorry is not a great villain but the reason why he works for a lot of people is that he has very clearly defined goals mm -hmm. and his reason for the things that he wants is very clear right that's really all you need like you don't necessarily need to understand and identify with them like you mm -hmm. don't need to look at them as your friend or to understand them emotionally you just need to understand why they're doing what they're doing why their motivations are here and that's what's missing from these characters, especially Barbara. Why is Barbara doing what she's doing? Right? Why did she beat the crap out of that guy? Is it because she's losing her humanity because the wish is taking it away from her? Well, if that's the case, then she doesn't have any agency in that choice. She's not doing anything because of that choice. It's the wish that's causing it to happen. And if it's not, then we need to understand what her motivations are. We need a scene with that character either talking to another character like, oh, I don't know, Diana Prince, mm. or someone saying, I feel this change in me. I feel like something has happened. I don't, I don't want this anymore. Now I want this. And, and we don't get any of that. It's all under the table. It's all quote unquote implied, but really it's just not explained. Um, and again, I, I hate the wishing thing because it removes agency from your characters. Because it's not what they, okay, the, 
there once motivated the wish being made, but none of the consequences, right? Now you've turned all your characters into passive reactors instead of active decision makers, right? And basically for the rest of this movie, Wonder Woman is on her hind foot because she's constantly reacting instead of making proactive decisions to improve situations. Um, so, uh, all right. So in any case, like Barbara makes that choice and then we go to, to Egypt and we see the great pyramids. Cause I don't know, I guess they couldn't, they're visible from every the window in Egypt. In there. Gotta have some wonder of the world, right? Hmm. And, and they wind up in Egypt. We find out that Maxwell Lord is attempting to, uh, obtain oil from, uh, and, oil wealthy oil man who is from the middle east who makes a joke about selling all his oil to the saudis i i just, and and it, we get a lot of of uh racism, lot of uh, racism. just a whole lot because what does that guy want what's his wish mm. to have all the infidels removed from his the land of his people i was like we really needed to uh, revisit the early 2000s level of uh racism that we were experiencing so a little yeah. post 9 11 racism haven't seen and that so, in the movies in 20 years. It's been a bit. And and then we get uh, an action set piece that was probably pre-vised three years before this movie went into production, uh, which is Wonder Woman on a empty stretch of road or a green screen studio. Take your pick. And uh, like demolishing trucks. This feels very Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. Um, Anytime not, you're in a desert. Not in a good way. I mean, she's climbing on tanks. She's underneath cars. It's not bad. I mean, it's fine. It's shot relatively well. We establish that she can be injured now. She gets hit by a stray bullet. Uh, Steve is driving because, you know, what what else is he going to do? Uh, the other thing wouldn't, that, wouldn't again, when you start horrified? thinking about it, uh, remember, this isn't Steve. This is like some random engineer man from Washington, D.C., and if Steve dies here, he his soul presumably will return to the great beyond. <laughs> other dude is is dead. And he's <laughs> like just straight up. And really, at any point, you know, he could just wake up behind the wheel of a moving car <laughs> and not know what's going on. Um, exactly. I also had a question of, of Steve seems to be a really great stunt driver, despite mm -hmm. probably having very little experience practically with driving automobiles that can go at these speeds. Uh, no, he, he had a Duesenberg. It was fine. We're <laughs> uh, topping out at 30. <laughs> yeah, man. It's got, it's got a new automatic transmission. Three speed. Goes up to 45 miles per hour. And he's just topping on top of tanks. and. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's being an action hero, which we, again, we just kind of have to go along with the idea that he is capable of such things. Um, never mind the fact that the dude whose body he's in may be a total schlub and like never exercise. I mean, we oh, know he had pop tarts he's, in his know, house. For, they would never put Steve Trevor in a, the body of a schlubby tax accountant or something. <laughs> I just this it makes no sense. It, yeah, and, and again, this is a film where the moment you start thinking about it beyond what you are being presented with on screen, it just unravels in ways that are, are completely unexpected. Um, so this, this scene is okay. We do get some good action. You know, the big trailer shot where she gets flipped out of the, the, the off the bottom of the truck by dropping the, uh, the drive shaft into the dirt, you know, but the other thing that is, is illustrated perfectly by this scene is that Maxwell Lord is of no threat 
to Diana at all. Yeah. Um, he himself personally has absolutely no ability to defy her or stand against her in any way. And it's it's made super obvious and it's really, really strange because they have no significant scenes in the movie whatsoever uh, together. Like one of them is in this sequence as she like is on the hood of his car saying like, you need to stop what you're doing. Um, but like, he's just a terrible villain because Diana could easily dispatch him, but it's just through circumstance that he gets away, but he's constantly like just running. Um, we do get another moment where we see Diana's powers begin to fail. She goes to rescue some children from the convoy who are playing soccer in the street because it's definitely the 1980s and children are just playing in the streets. And uh, even though it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, and that piece of physical action when she rescues those kids is awful. Yes. Uh, aside, bad. aside from the fact that if they did hit the ground, at that speed, in that way, those kids are dead. Like they're, <laughs> they they're at least have broken most of the dead. bones in their body. Because <laughs> she didn't do any. I mean, like I expected her to like flip to her back and like do the slide along the road thing, but she rolls with them, and it's it's just so awkward and so strange. Uh, and there's one shot that it's like those are obvious dummies. Like they are straight up dummies, and not even good men. dummies, and not even good ones. Yeah, like. So some of the stuff just felt like one, I don't think they knew how to end that. I don't think they knew how to end that chase. And so they ended it by having her rescue children, which is, is good. I mean, I want to see Wonder Woman rescue children. That's a good thing. But I, I think it was just maybe not at this stage executed. in the story. Maybe yeah. we could pause the child rescuing for her to deal with this, this big thing. You know, I mean, I understand like yeah. that's what distracts her in, in the fight. But did that have to happen? <laughs> I, I really don't know. But she's she's weakened and um, she calls Barbara after the fact. We get a news thing saying that the world's destabilized because of this. The guy wished for a wall for the infidels. The wall went up. Now they can't get stuff in and out. And now oil is bad. So gas gets expensive. You know, if you want to tell a story about oil, set it in 1974, for God's sakes. I mean, that's when oil was a problem. In the United States said it during that, but whatever as she calls Barbara says, Hey, have you found out anything? Barbara says, yes, I've got all this information. Meet me next to the Kinko's on seventh street. And Diana, who's in Egypt is like, yep, we'll be there soon. And I'm like, will you though? <laughs> Very soon. <laughs> will you? <laughs> Cause I know you've got an invisible jet now, but, uh, mm, I, I really don't think that you can travel from Egypt to, the United States land your invisible plane on a runway and then make your way to the, the record store next to the Kinko's on seventh street. I, dude, this, this is where you can tell that this movie failed to connect the pieces. One, the wig scene on the other side where she's explaining like what she's discovered are super obvious reshoots reshoots based on her hair. Mm -hmm. uh, the hair is wrong based on what we've seen in previous scenes. It's close, and they shoot it in a way and frame it in a way that you can't really see it, but it is different hair. Well, you can tell it's a wig because you can see where her hairline meets uh, mm -hmm. the fake. Wig. And she's just like in a black shirt. 
She's not mm-hmm. in any of the clothing that she's been wearing. She's just in like a loose fitting black shirt. But this is, you can tell they got, and they said, we don't know how to get us into the, the third act of this movie. And so we need this scene where Diana and Barbara talk on the phone. And then they establish that the wish stone, wherever it shows up, just destroys the society that it's in. And then we get another really weird scene where they go to visit uh, a Mayan. Uh, and I felt like this is a reshoot, but I don't think it is. They do sort of debut Kristen Wiig's new look, which is not at all in hanging with the scene that we just saw of her in the Smithsonian. Like her eye makeup is different. Her hair is much brighter. She's sporting like fur coats and all kinds of stuff. So if they did get there fast, which she says that was fast. So I assume it was pretty quick. Um, Again, Barbara is just, She's not in the same condition that she was last time you saw her. But this whole scene exists just to explain that the wish thing is bad. And be racist. <laughs> and pretty racist. Um, I, I, I disagree that like all of those societies immediately fell <laughs> at those times. Uh, I think there's probably some history against that. But um, I bet. <laughs> This is basically the scene where they establish that the Wishstone is where everything is coming Dreamstone, excuse me, is where everything's coming from. It's the source of all their problems. And all they need to do is destroy it, and then all the wishes will be undone, and that will put everything back right again. Crazy so, how no one had done that yet. Yeah, it's kind of weird. <laughs> but here's the thing. This is the scene where Diana and Barbara converge, not because of personal differences. Not because they they feel differently about things or they they want different things. But Barbara decides that she doesn't want to give up her wish. Uh, She got more than she bargained for with her wish. She got power and she got Diana's strength. Which again should have been the monkey's paw that she's seeping Diana's strength away. Like that seems like a much more obvious thing for her wish to do. But no, um, at least not in this version of the movie. And and now, you know, everything starts to unravel, right? I, I, we could spend hours talking about these next few plot points, but it basically Maxwell Lord realizes that things are getting bad. The the seeming downside to him being the Wishmaster is that it's wrecking his body, right? Giving the wishes is causing him pain. So Which doesn't like a- make any sense because in the previous scene, Chris Pine says it takes your most valued possession. And since when has the mm-hmm. movie told us that his most valued possession is his physical body? Well, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. Oh my god! <laughs> this fucking movie! <laughs> I've just stolen a year of your life away. <laughs> um, well, if you don't have your health, what do you have? <laughs> um, so, yes, it, it takes your most value for possession, which in a, a movie that made sense, that would be his son, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, seemingly, like we're being told that Maxwell Lord's most value for possession is his kid. So it should take him away. But uh, no, it's going to take his health away. So he is bleeding out the ear uh, because of wishes uh, <laughs> for some reason. And and we do get it. I mean, again, Pascal is acting well with what he has. Uh, he's emoting all over this kid and saying, I love you and I care about you. Um, he gets him to say, don't you wish I had 
don't you wish I had an audience with the the president? Because uh, he wants to see the president so he can have real power. Uh, again, why? Who knows? Uh, he did pick up the security detail from the, uh, uh, the Egyptian man. Uh, and so now they're his personal bodyguards, even though they show up just periodically. Uh, which I, I did have here read somebody and I was talking to somebody about it who said like, so what that means is like Steve and Diana like murder a bunch of those security guys on that road. <laughs> and it wasn't even their choice to be there, right? Like they were forced into that situation outside of their will, uh, which, you know, is, is crazy. Um, but anyway, but yeah, so apparently because of, because a wall went up, uh, now everybody's freaking out about oil and the world is falling apart. Uh, which this is very cynical and, and all of this is, is, is very cynical because it basically says that if a human being gets the choice to, to wish for something, they'll throw everybody else under the bus to get what they want, or at least most people will. And it's only Wonder Woman that can withstand the temptation, which I think is, is kind of gross. Uh, you know, in a movie that is purports to be hopeful about things, uh, it doesn't really have a very hopeful stance. So they arrive back at Diana's apartment and Diana reveals her, uh, I don't know, battle station, I guess, <laughs> um, where she's she's got like her her little. Uh, she's got like a little space where she um, like has like security cameras and TVs and stuff. And it's just in the corner and like wrapped in some some butcher paper um, is apparently the greatest suit of armor ever created by the Amazons forever that Diana has just so happened to find at some point in the recent past. And instead of putting it in a museum or doing anything with it, it's just kind of hanging out in her closet. Because that's what you would do. The right dress for the right occasion. Am I right, ladies? That's right, ladies. You got to be prepared. And so then she puts the lasso of truth on Steve, which allows him to see a flashback of the suit of armor being used against again Zack Snyder's That's what the lasso Spartans. of truth does. Is that what the lasso of truth does? Uh, it does whatever you want it to do. <laughs> um, obviously, but so that we'd already gotten a little hint of who she was because she's like the example that they were all going towards at the Golden Games at the beginning. But now we have a, a clear flashback to understand that she sacrificed herself to save all the other Amazons. And then we see that Diana has like security cameras for a woman who enjoys destroying security cameras. Uh, she has feeds into all of the security cameras in Washington, D.C. Uh, so she's able to instantaneously locate Maxwell Lord's car as he is headed to the White House. Uh, so they decide to meet him there and convince him to renounce his wish and change everything. And I, mm, so, again, this scene in the White House is pretty good uh diana calls upon a guy that was hitting on her at the smithsonian party earlier in the movie to get them in so because a goddess uh, yeah, a goddess would not find any other way than using her sexuality to get what she wants yeah i mean can't she just burst in really that's, i mean what are they gonna do that's the lesson for your little girls in 2020 <laughs> to get right. what you want kids Flirt with men, then you'll be rewarded. Yeah, There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> so uh, it's just uh, okay. So they get in there. Peter Pascal's already gotten into an audience with the president. He gets him to wish. He 
also finds out about this this thing that will allow him to wish wish uh, to wish with the world with this amazing power with particles that reach out and it's basically like they're touching someone and and then another action sequence she uh she hits him with the lasso of truth okay and The lasso of truth, doesn't it make you tell the truth? Like, isn't that what it does? Yeah, well, it's in the name. So she had him lassoed up, and then she doesn't do anything with it. She doesn't say, like, tell her these people the truth, or, you know, tell them that your wish needs to be renounced. I, I don't know. It seems like having him wrapped up with the lasso of truth could have been an opportunity to make him do a thing, or at least reveal a thing. And then she just kind of uses it to fling him around a lot. And I, I get, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I understand what's going on. I see what's going on. None of it really seems to make a lot of sense. And it seems like there would be better potential things that could be done. But really what this scene is all about is Barbara and Diana confronting each other for the first time. So now Barbara is in full badass mode. She's in the same outfit we saw earlier, but she, you know, she's confident, sexy. She's got a lot of, she's got a lot of, latent energy right she's refreshed her eyeliner um, and and she's ready to rock even though at this point we don't really know what powers she has apart from a decent amount of strength uh but you know so we get a fight scene it's they're kind of working together it's mostly diana just like stopping her from hurting all of these dudes so like she's catching them as they fall and I don't really know what it I don't know what the point of this is. Uh it's establishing that Kristen Wiig is dangerous and and a badass and that Diana's going to try to stop her from hurting people. Okay. That's that's good. Sure. Um But yeah, it doesn't I don't I don't know. It it doesn't really go anywhere and it doesn't really tell us anything new that we didn't already know or suspect about the characters. The other line I wanted to ask about, and maybe I just missed something. Do you remember? So like as the cheetah fight's going on, Steve Trevor and, and Maxwell Lord are like off in a side hallway and they're like having a conversation as Steve's trying to keep Max Lord from leaving. And Max Lord looks at Steve Trevor and says, do you want to tell me what your wish is? Do you want to be a real boy? You remember that? I do. I thought that was going to become something. So does that mean that Maxwell Lord knows that Steve Trevor is in another dude's body? How and why? How does he know who Steve Trevor is? And how does he know the situation that Steve Trevor is in? That wasn't Maxwell. I mean, that wish was granted before Maxwell Lord was the wish stone. Does he have like a historical record of all the wishes that were granted? Again, he, this feels He wished for great knowledge. As we as we said, scene missing. Right? Like straight up scene missing. Uh Like it would have been cool if Maxwell Lord was like investigating Wonder Woman for some reason and maybe did know more about her and okay. was sort of angling on how to use this thing against her. That would be really interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, because here's the here's the thing. Maxwell Lord, in his his most recent incarnation, 
That's exactly what he was doing. Oh, you're kidding. Is Maxwell <laughs> Lord was keeping intense and careful records of every superhero on the planet. Some with intent to blackmail them, others with intent to harm them. It's almost like that's a comic book trope in and of itself. And then he kicks off Infinite Crisis by killing Blue Beetle. No way. Like, the, so, the irony is that this story has already been written for them and they didn't use any of it. <laughs> right. And that's the thing that, that Marvel is definitely killing DC on, is the ability to distill, adapt, and, and sort of carefully recombobulate comic book storylines into new things that work for their movies. Whereas DC seems so averse to using any of the storylines from the comics, they're willing to make references to it, they're willing to sort of goof around with them, but they are so unwilling to use the material that they've already got written, the material they've already proven, and use it again and remix it and rework it. And so as a result, we get this, where somebody along the line in the chain probably knew that that would be a good version of Maxwell Lord. Again, it's 1984. Surveillance state, cameras yeah. everywhere, people watching you, acquiring so data, cool information. In Maybe Maxwell Lord was doing that to try and blackmail people to join his business or just have powerful friends. Who knows? But again, it feels like an idea that was dropped. And then nobody thought to update the script, right? They yeah. just didn't delete those scenes. They just left them in. And it's it's kind of pathetic. I mean, it's, it really is. So then the world goes to hell. And really, basically, we're at the point where Diana has to let Steve go. And my only issue with this scene is that basically Chris Pine says the same thing that he said at the end of the first movie, which is the world needs you, not me. Right? Like, yeah. It's the exact same conversation they had. I, I, you could read it a couple different ways, I guess. But he's just like, you know, the world's pretty good. I got to live it for a while. I got to be with you. But now the world needs you and you've got to let me go. So, you know, just like get out of here. You know, Casablanca moment. Hit <laughs> <laughs> the road, and, kid. <laughs> and again, Gal Gadot is not, not good. Uh, she's, she's crying a lot in the scene and it's... It, it, it's it's an emotion i felt an emotion um and, and anybody that can make me feel an emotion in this hellscape of a year congratulations well done patty jenkins but um yeah like gal gadot's acting ability is is made in is made pretty stark here yeah. and it's it's not great but she unlocks her flying power, right? Level up. I was kind of expecting like the golden flash from World of Warcraft, right? Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> and uh, now she can can fly. She gets her powers back. Um, and she figures out flight. And I, I, I love flying scenes. I've said it before. I said it last week with the Rocketeer. I love flying scenes, and this is a good one. I'm more than happy to watch Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman fling herself through the air and fly like Superman a little bit. It, this since the beginning of the film, this is the other piece of it that felt like a direct callback, a direct reminiscent moment to the Donner Superman. Right. Like this is, yeah. this is, this is that right. Even the, the putting both arms in front and, and all of that stuff. It's, it's Donner Superman. Somebody watched that sequence. and like, we're going to do that with wonder woman, man. And it's fine. It's just fine. I wish it was in service of a better film. 
Um, Then we get like this weird scene because now Cheetah, this powerful, incredibly powerful force, her only goal for the remainder of the film is to protect Maxwell Lord, to become his personal bodyguard. Which again, so (laughs) freaking dumb. So we have this, to be in service of man, which is exactly Apex predator is going to be in service of Maxwell Lord. That is exactly what she was saying. She didn't want when she beat up yep. the guy. It is it's, so thematically inconsistent that it is heart wrenching. I mean, not only is it just stupid, it's the movie is forgetting what it did like 10 minutes before. And so then Maxwell suddenly can offer second wishes to people. So he offers a second wish to Apex, uh, to Kristen Wiig. And she says, I want to be an Apex Predator. Something there's never, ever been before, uh, which again feels thematically unearned. Um, I, again, I think a single conversation earlier in the film where the zoologist explains her appreciation of Apex Predators, right? Because the only mention of a cheetah specifically in this film is Diana's shoes at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and I go, we're going to get nitpicky here, and I am not a zoologist, so I cannot speak to this specifically, but I know when I think of apex predators, I don't think of cheetahs. Um, are are they was, powerful? They are, they are powerful. I guess I was hoping for something more along the lines of Ash's perfect organism speech from alien mm-hmm. where maybe we would have some moment in the film where she would have been standing in like the smithsonian's exhibit on a saber-toothed tiger or something and she would start talking about these these apex predators and how it's- maybe she could have been giving a lesson in a oh. auditorium you mean for her profession the concept of apex predators to a group of students who had come to the smithsonian to uh, see some exhibits Oh, and being the new on staff zoologist, she might have been able to explain the concept of the apex predator and how the cheetah, even though it may not be the apex predator of its entire region, is still the most dangerous because of its speed and ferocity. And, you know, like maybe a scene like that could have worked. I don't know. Maybe. <clears throat> it uh, might have been in the movie. Who knows? Yeah. Like. Feels like there again, was at least four or five different movies that they cut up in this one. At least. But so then Maxwell Lord goes on TV. He finds a secret magical military base with a, a blue beam of light flying into the satellites in the sky. And then he talks to everyone on the planet at the same time. And everybody speaks English, fortunately. <laughs> and uh, even in China, they're just like, oh, I want to be famous. And everybody's like, oh, you're famous now. And they're all speaking English. And it's a wonderful unified mm-hmm. world. Uh, Louis Armstrong is playing in the background. And then people start making wishes, right? He starts demanding wishes. And people start wishing for all kinds of things, and the world begins to fall apart. Um, there I are some other... It doesn't matter. I don't know why every superhero movie now... I, I mean, I blame Marvel for this. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't understand why every superhero movie ever has to have an apocalyptic world-ending event. It's all about stakes, and it seems like the only way that these people know how to develop stakes is to me is to be the literal end of the planet for people to care. <laughs> I mean, like, what is it this week? You know, what crisis are we going to suffer as humans that like, we'll have to be rescued from again? Like, I watched Theory of Everything 
last week, um, which I'd never seen before. Uh, I'm generally not a big biopic guy. Um, I find as I'm getting older, I'm, I'm find them more palatable, unfortunately. Um, but so I watched Theory of Everything, which, of course, is the story of Stephen Hawking, the early days of his marriage. Uh, it's it's hagiographic. It's not especially brilliant. But the stakes of that movie are the quiet condition of a relationship of a man with a very serious disease who lived a lot longer than anyone expected him to and who the people who loved him found difficult to reconcile. Right. It's quiet. People coming to terms with things. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like you can build entire stories around somebody coming to understand something. Mm hmm. And make a change in their lives, a, a personal choice. You could argue how they that deal with change it. is integral to the telling of any story. And that without changes, a story hasn't actually taken place. <laughs> right. But in this, these movies, no. The, the world is going to be torn apart. And I understand scale. Like when you have a larger-than-life character, you need a larger-than-life scenario. But mm. in this yeah. case, man... It's become so de rigueur, so typical. I always think of what happened with Spider-Man 3. Um, here, here's the funny thing. I was going to say that this <laughs> is Spider-Man 3. <laughs> like that was part of my final discussion of this is that this is DC's Spider-Man 3. Um, it's unfocused. It's unclear. The villains are come and go and don't matter. The hero is conflicted in ways that make no sense. It, yeah, it's just a mess. And that movie was a result of a studio demanding things of a director who was not capable of delivering. Yeah. That's basically where that came from. And Sam Raimi, even though he doesn't really, he has not spoken of it publicly, obviously, but the people who have, people like Danny Elfman, said that that movie basically ruined Sam Raimi. Like it was a terrible experience and he didn't work a long time. Yeah. I mean, you can tell it was a bad experience given the trajectory of his career after. Yeah. Um, I hope that that doesn't happen to Patty Jenkins. No, same. (laughs) And I hope that that's not the result here, but this is obviously a film where there were a lot of people with a lot of things that they were expecting to see. Um, And, and I don't think that Jenkins as capable as she is and as good as she is. I mean, I think she's a good director. Uh, I don't think she was able to pull them off and, and bring them all together. Like that's really what a director needs to do is take the differing visions of sometimes thousands of people and unite them into a single cohesive whole, right? Yeah. It's not like writing a book where it's just you and you're making all the choices you get to decide. And then maybe an editor or somebody comes in and offers their thoughts. I mean, this is like thousands of people, hundreds of departments, all delivering material and you have to assemble the final piece like peter jackson and and making the lord of the rings movies you know there was an immense amount of pressure placed on him to give everyone what they wanted even though what everyone wanted was arguably very different yes and here you can just kind of feel those seams pretty badly Uh, so our final confrontation is lord is is wishing the world away is um and again i don't know how this happened but diana's flying through the air uh she figures out how to rope lightning and flies along that which is looks cool as hell but then she somehow winds up at the location she apparently goes back to dc gets the magic golden armor of Asteria, 
puts it on and then flies back to the island where the satellite is. Well, I mean, once you learn ship. how to fly, you just fly around all the time. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty You just can't stop. Real simple. And, and fortunately, circumnavigating the globe through flight is really simple, especially when you're looking for an island in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. Uh, it requires very little effort to locate such things. Um, I kind of expected like a little arrow to pop up like in video games that kind of mm-hmm. points her in the right direction of the island so yeah, she knows where nice she's going. Point. So she shows up in this armor and and Barbara is there. She has made her transformation into Cheetah now. Cheetah looks awful. Um, awful. awful. So bad. Uh, you can tell there was a physical onset costume because uh, there are some scenes of Kristen Wiig and like full makeup and body but obviously that full makeup prosthetic was not adequate uh, which i given that cats came out in the same year i can absolutely mm-hmm. tell you why uh it is uncomfortable and disconcerting to see a human being that looks like a cat uh <laughs> i did hear one person ask uh so she wished for this right She's supposed to be something that's never been seen before why did she need a tail yeah like <laughs> In what world is a tail anything other than a liability? Looks cool. Uh, it looks cute. <laughs> it's cool. But so we get a fight. Uh, it's shot day for night. It's at night so that you can't see the bad CG effects. If it was in broad daylight like everything else, it would be the worst. The digital body doubling is not good. The cheetah look, I mean, it's it's fairly comics accurate. It's whatever. Um, but... It, the armor gets immediately destroyed. Uh, this armor that has lasted a thousand generations or some shit. Cheetah just immediately tears it apart, which I, I don't know if that is supposed to speak to how powerful Cheetah is or that the armor was actually sort of not great to begin with. <laughs> and maybe the Amazons put their faith in the wrong person. I don't know. Um, I always <clears throat> feel like movies do this. They'll introduce a really cool prop costume or something and then they'll just ruin it in like 30 seconds and yeah because it it's crazy. expensive and we're just gonna get rid of it and so it gets torn apart they fly around a little bit they fight um they get a little bit of an emotional scene at the end as as cheetah's like you know ah this is what i've always wanted or whatever um and then she electrocutes her by mm electrocuting the water that she herself is in yeah but i guess diana because she's the daughter of zeus doesn't respond to electricity um or her her gold (laughs) armor protect it's just it makes no sense right but she electrocutes her somehow and then the final confrontation with Max Lord is meaningless. She can't get to him because of wind, apparently. What? Where was oh the wind God. coming from? The wishes. It's the wishing wind. <laughs> <laughs> because every time somebody wishes for something, there's a little there's a little wind. Right? Like, wind. But ah. since he's granting so many wishes, there's a lot of wind. The wishing wind is strong. <laughs> the wishing wind is strong with this one. Uh, yeah, it's just... And it and that it's so powerful that Diana can't. She's a she, goddess. She's a goddess, <laughs> and it's just wind. She just stood in electrified she could, water. She, <laughs> she could, was fine. She could fly. <laughs> just when you're in the air, you fly on the wind, right? Like, isn't that how it works? So, so okay, I will give this film 
a just tiny, tiny little bit of credit in that the final conflict is not against a giant god cloud of dust. It is an emotional one where she uses the lasso of truth, which can somehow go through the wind. Uh, because I know that ropes definitely respond better to wind than human bodies do. <laughs> and she lassos him and then uses him as a vessel to communicate to the world the same message that Antiope gave to her, which is that truth is truth and the truth is beautiful because the truth, which is also about being truthful as often as you can because of truth. Um, that is all you know and all you need to know. <laughs> that's right. Um, I, I understand the message here, right? And in a film that actually dealt with the the surface level sheen and gloss of the 80s and the sort of icky, disgusting heartbeat of it underneath, that having Wonder Woman tell you that the truth of the world, no matter what it might be, is better than the, the falseness of the unreality of it that might have had meaning. But this movie doesn't talk about those things at all. No. And has zero to say about them. And so Pedro Pascal is, is good in this scene. He's just hamming it up. I mean, you know, if he had the scenery in his hands, he'd be eating it like donuts. Um, he still seems to know like Steve Trevor because he says you can have him back. You can have it all if you want it. Well, so and, he's, and the way he talks about Wonder Woman, it seems that he knows who Wonder Woman is. Yeah. Almost like everybody does, which is, again, in direct contrast with what we know about Wonder Woman and what we've been told. Right. And and so, yeah, we, we sort of loosely come back to the Themyscira thing about, like, accepting the truth, even though it's not what you want. Which, you know, again, loosely connects to all the stuff that we're seeing, but not in a satisfying way. And it, here's the thing that really bugs me about it. As much as I like the fact that they go for, like, the more emotional ending, the emotional ending. She says the world was pretty good as it was. No. And if there's one thing about the 80s that I think we can all kind of universally agree at this point is that it wasn't that great. No, and the was... world is not pretty good. It's actually really bad in a lot of ways. It's been getting steadily worse since the 80s, actually. <laughs> and so what Wonder Woman is saying here is that the status quo is actually preferable. Not change, not change for the better. Just go back to the way things were, which is it's... such an odd thing. It would have been so much to say it would have been so much stronger if it was about her coming to terms herself with the fact that the world is very ugly and that that is the truth and that she can't change all of it and she can't fix all of it all the time and that would have been really cool paired with the villain whose motivation seems to be I want it all and I want to have it all and I want everything to be my way all the time. The world but, belongs to me, right? But all of those things were just just left in a cold oven. Like, it just nothing happens. So then when we have this big emotional moment, there's absolutely nothing behind it. 
right it has no heft it has no payoff there, there was never any setup so we can't have payoff and so we think she's talking to maxwell lord that you know he needs to renounce his wish but we find out she's actually talking to the world and asking them to renounce it by telling them that the world was actually pretty good before so you should adjust you know just go back to the way it was you know, renounce your wish say it you don't know people and yeah and uh, so it works somehow and Max Lord renounces his wish because he has a revelation of his past and what he's sacrificed and what he's given up in order to become this shyster of a man. And then he just kind of runs away and uh, gives up. And again, Pedro Pascal is a great actor. He sells it very well. He says, I renounce my wish. He sprints out of the building, apparently gets one of the military guys, even though his wish has been renounced to helicopter him back to the mainland. (laughs) (laughs) um because you know army guys are definitely cool with strange people just asking for helicopter rides um but uh the president oh we didn't even mention why is ronald reagan not in this movie i i am a fur i am of the firm belief that they were going to do a digital replacement and turn that into ronald reagan and then they just decided not to I think that they would have had to make a stronger statement with this movie if they had done anything like that. I think that's why there aren't any Russians in it. Um, Yeah. I think the movie just really, it would rather have been racist than make a statement about American politics and Russia. And that is really, really sad. Yeah. Somebody at the corporate level said, we're not even going to touch that. We're not even going to touch that. Not with a 10 foot pole. Because uh, we're going to sell this movie in Moscow, gosh darn it. And uh, we want them bucks. Uh, we don't care about random countries in the Middle East. That's fine. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, that, uh, Moscow, no, Putin's our buddy. You know, not only was that a great story opportunity that could have given some some credence to the, the whole 1984 thing in the first place. Um, but it just wow, this movie is just really casually racist and yet is so afraid to make any sort of statements about the political climate of the 1980s. You get one thing at the end when they're doing the missile launches. That's it. Yeah. So he, Alistair, um, is, is running around the streets of Washington, D.C. on freeways <laughs> and stuff. And that's what kids Mac- do. Yeah. I mean, the Max Lord comes back. Lands- Finds him immediately. And finds him immediately. His son just emerges from the bushes of the random field that his <laughs> helicopter landed in. And and they do get a very emotional moment where he says, the kid's like, I wish for you to come back. I knew you'd come. And he's like, no, I'm not here because of a wish. I'm here because I love you. I actually am this giant loser. Please, I hope you'll forgive me. And the kid's like, daddy, I always loved you. And it's, it's, it's nice. I mean, it's good. Again, this is a good moment. It's edited well. It's shot well. It's just pay off for something that we never got uh any yeah. kind of setup for and it's unfortunate um all right so we're wrapping this up finally uh we don't know what <laughs> happens to cheetah we get a brief instance of her she's turned back into her Kristen wig self so did she renounce her wish did she not the film seems to intentionally not want to tell us one way or the other which is fine i guess but you know i it's it's such a waste that character basically goes out with a wet fart and nothing happens to her and it's so sad again i think barbara minerva got done dirty by the storyline and nothing about it uh it's just terrible 
and I don't know why we're supposed to feel good at the end of this movie. Nothing good happened. Uh, she basically just made the world go back to the way it was instead of making any significant changes. Or and the world was shitty. <laughs> no, nah, it's got scarves in it. Scarves are cool. Scarves uh, and pleated pants. <laughs> so Barbara just kind of fades. Uh, Maxwell Lord apparently receives absolutely no punishment for anything that happens. And he just kind of goes back to doing his thing. Which I'm glad. I mean, DC has killed its villains far too many times, right? They've they've learned that lesson at the least, where they just murder their villain at the end of every movie. So at least they can have these men back. But I hope it's in the service of a better story. But then in, in the creepiest ending scene of 2020, for sure, Wonder Woman hits on the guy that uh, she's already had sex with, but he was possessed by Steve Trevor's soul at the time. And uh, now I guess we're supposed to feel happy that Wonder Woman feels able to connect with other people again. And she's going to hook up with this random guy that she's already hooked up with. Uh, can, but can he didn't just, know like, about it. Can we just like take a moment and talk about how that's, you know, people point to that moment in Superman where he sleeps with Lois Lane and then she's got her memory taken away. And it's like, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. But this yeah, is no, this is the same kind of problem. I I mean I know, um, I know that people would love to to say it's no big deal because it's Wonder Woman and what guy wouldn't what straight man wouldn't want to jump into bed right. with Wonder this Woman? Right. So the guy where nice. <laughs> but but at the same time, I find this disturbing. I find this creepy that she's looking at this man who has no clue who she is, and she's thinking about what she's essentially put his body through without his consent. I'm not just right. talking about this, sex with her. Like this dude was jumping on and consent. off of trucks. Really uncomfortable. Ew. Just um, made me feel gross. I mean, and they even get the scene where like Steve didn't like the outfit and then he's got that outfit on and she's like, nice, nice outfit. I like that. And it's just, Ew. it's, it's very artificial. It's, it, it feels that, that scene also feels like a reshoot. Like they didn't know how to end this movie. Because the Maxwell Lord thing's not enough to end on. You gotta end on Wonder Woman. But how? How do you give her emotional closure for nothing? I mean, nothing happened. Um, she had no growth other than she can fly now. I mean, like, it just doesn't it does it doesn't make any sense. And it just feels gross. And then the scene that she's flying in next doesn't look like the winter either i i no. it's mm, none of it hangs together it was it just works. recently july <laughs> yeah um and then we do have an extra credit sequence uh but it's it's not a stinger of the, the traditional sense but it is a chance for linda carter the original wonder woman to make an appearance as Asteria, the wearer of the golden armor the icon that all amazons look up to is is linda carter and this is is wonderful right if the rest of the film could have achieved this tone in this little moment but it feels like it the film was just working up to this moment it feels like yeah. the, the, these films exist for these little post-credit scenes rather than existing to be good things right uh, again i think it's it's moment to moment filmmaking instead of large-scale storytelling right which is what marvel has been excelling at whereas i think marvel often fails on the moment to moment storytelling right? The small stories, but they're succeeding so well on the large scale that you kind of give them a pass. But what we've discovered is that if you get the moment to moment stuff right, but it's not in service of a larger story, 
then it's who cares who cares like what are we going to latch on to like what from this movie if we're going let's let's go ahead and, and wrap it up we've we've talked way too long this movie <laughs> doesn't deserve this much talking but here yes we are. it does it makes me angry <laughs> <laughs> so if you were going to recommend this film to someone what could you possibly offer them as the thing that they should look for that's cool what does this movie have a couple of scenes of wonder woman doing cool shit maybe the mall scene at the beginning quite frankly it's got linda carter at the end and I always right. like and to see, see her. On YouTube, probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't need HBO Max to know that Linda Carter's a national treasure. I don't. I don't need that. Yeah. Um, I can say that my wife was so disappointed about the armor. Like she was yeah. so excited about the armor. She's like that armor looks awesome. That's so cool. I can't wait to see that. And I have heard it suggested from a couple of different places now um, that the armor that she wasn't supposed to have her powers in that last fight, that the armor was supposed to be a supplement to that, that she needed it to fight Cheetah. But then they, they took that out. They took that element out, which I think is an interesting possibility as well. That would have made it, more sense. Yeah. I mean, why else does Wonder Woman need a golden suit of armor? She's invulnerable. Can't shoot her. What difference does it make? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's yeah. Um, any, in any case, so there's nothing really to hang their hat on. So I guess let's get into it. What's uh, what is your one thing? What is one thing we could try and do to save Wonder Woman eighty four? Well, I have back? a feeling. What is, what is the Jenkins cut of nineteen? If Wonder Woman eighty four cut, I have <laughs> a feeling I know. I know what your version would be, and so I'm gonna let you tell your version. And I'm gonna go with a different one. I th I feel like you would say we don't need Max Lord and we should have a Wonder Woman cheetah movie. Yeah. I'm I will suggest that you could have a Max Lord Wonder Woman movie by removing Cheetah <laughs> entirely. Yeah. Sure. Because um, in my feeling it should be one or the other. Um and I was kind of thinking like originally I I, I really wanted to see more of Cheetah but I do like the Max Lord story, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Lex Luthor, and I get really nostalgic about stupid Lex Luthor stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And so if I were going to keep that in the film, I would have started with sort of parallel stories about loss and wanting to be more than you are. And maybe we get something on Themyscira of Wonder Woman dealing with her first big loss. Mm-hmm dealing with uh, what it's like to accept loss gracefully, of to not get what you want. And then we have Max Lord as a child, which we see at the end, so we know that that's part of it. Mm -hmm. But we see him as a child and his upbringing and how it was a constant struggle. And maybe he doesn't feel... He feels like he's had to work harder for everything. and Nothing comes easy, and he just wants success and he wants to win yeah, and so you kind of set them up them. exactly we've got yuppies everywhere it's perfect for that um and you could do a big statement on yuppie culture and how maybe maybe diana hates that it's just sure. the epitome the, of everything that disgusts her um and and max lord on the other hand buys into it because it's that image of success that he craves and then we get 
I don't know. You can have a, a dream stone, a wish stone. You can mm-hmm. have your MacGuffin. That's fine. I'm I'm a okay with MacGuffins. Right. They were good enough for Hitchcock. They're good enough for me. But center it all around Max Lord and Diana being foils for each other. Right. Remove Steve from the film entirely, please. For yes. the love of God. Yeah. I mean, maybe and have. A flashback. Make that, have a dream sequence. Yeah, where she's you just got to have him there. You know, that would be Whatever. a great thing for her to do in the in the big villain hero face off where they they talk it out when they're fighting. Maybe she could talk about the loss of Steve and you can't always win and you can't get everything you want. You can't do it all. That would be fine because we would get our our reference to the first film. We would have you know this really nice emotional touchstone for Diana. But it would be a much smaller picture. I don't think it should have been the apocalyptic wish machine either. Maybe no. something on a corporate or city scale would have been fine. Um, but I would have made this a much, much smaller story about her dealing with a man who was going to potentially cause that kind of apocalyptic problem. But maybe didn't quite get to it in the space of the film. And that right. way, when like he escapes, things could have spiraled out of control. But Wonder Woman stops it before it gets to that. Yeah, and because you know. that way, when he escapes, we can believe that he would escape from this, and maybe he'll be back to cause trouble later. Right. I think yeah. that yeah. shifting the focus of the film to to the two of them and developing a real conflict that makes sense, and still using you know, the, the emotional center of his son, of Alistair, and kind of comparing that to the emotional center with Diana and Steve and how he's gone. Boy, that I mean, would have been a movie them, I'd have watched. <laughs> yeah, both of them want to be loved. They, they yeah. want someone to love them. And Maxwell Lord fundamentally feels that he is unlovable until he's successful, and Diana feels like she cannot be loved because she's made this great sacrifice for humanity. And, you know, there's... There's lots of ways that you can tie your villain and your hero together. So, I mean, I'll bounce off of that. And I, I think this would have been a more interesting film as as just a, a Diana and Cheetah movie. But I'll go ahead and just say this should have been a single villain film. Yeah. Because the First. best... For sure. Because the best hero films, or many of them, it's about showing how the hero and the villain... You know, it's not like you're just like me. You know, it's not that. <laughs> but it's it's about it's about helping establish the bond between your hero and the villain so that their their conflict has resonance. Creating states, a character right? foil is such a simple tactic, but there's a reason that we do it. It's effective. Yeah, it, it works. And so I mean, I don't care which villain you pluck out, because I like the Maxwell Lord idea a lot and i think if you're going to keep the wish stone concept or the dreamstone concept which you know whatever it could have just been a reality bending stone where he just gets yeah. what he wants like i don't i don't really care because that was the other thing that got dropped is they say that it's the duke of deception who's like Ares' little acolyte in the yeah, comics um and then they just drop it they don't do anything with it it's like well, what is that was is he controlling max lord whatever it doesn't matter this stuff is stupid um in any case the you know i it needed to be a single villain movie and take away the globe trotting we don't need the globe trotting i i know everybody thinks that superhero movies are all about like showing you world monuments and stuff 
keep it small. Because again, this is supposed to be about Diana being hidden from the world, right? Like that is the premise of this film is that nobody knows she's out here doing what she's doing. It's all under the scenes. But if she is is literally flying through the air on a Middle Eastern road, destroying trucks, yeah, there's going to be record of that. I, this, I just it would have made more sense if she was coming out of hiding to stop someone who was going to be a problem. Right. And then maybe, you know, have Max Lord at the end when the wish stone breaks or the dream stone breaks, everybody forgets. Like the world just goes back. Like just make that the excuse that it unwinds the world back to when the initial wish was made. Whatever. Yeah. Who cares? And maybe okay. and maybe you could have had a cool little scene at the end where I don't know, Superman or Batman shows up and is like, hey, we know what you did. Yeah. And I'll keep your secret. We'll cover this up. But you know, you know it would have been a nice little circle back to the Justice League, maybe. Yeah. But again, they've they're they're beholden to the dumb storyline of the Zack Snyder films, which is mm -hmm. the problem. But yeah, like reduce the number of villains, take it down to a single villain, build their relationship, make it stronger, um, you know, clear out the, the detritus of Steve Trevor completely. Um, again, I'm fine with a, a dream sequence or, you know, he shows up to her in some fantasy moment, whatever. But it, it just doesn't work for this movie to have him here and it doesn't do anything for it. And then if you're going to call your movie Wonder Woman 84, freaking lean into it. Give us the 80s, really. Not just, oh, we went on eBay and bought some outfits and we'll put them in the background. Like, actually lean into themes of the 80s, the style of the 80s, the concepts that were flying around in the 80s. Do your homework. And get right? inside the heads of people who lived in the 1980s. What were they thinking about? What were they afraid of? You know, there were so many opportunities to, to do some cool things just in the story, even in the background of things that are occupying in people's minds. The closest that we get to that is maybe the president. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. All right. So that's how we might fix this uh, failure piece of a film. Uh, but what would be your failure piece score? And uh, I think we've already made our recommendation known, but I guess we can state it fully if you want. If you... So what well, is your, would... your score for this one? I would indeed not recommend this movie um, unless you just have gads of time you have to waste um i i would give this a 25 wow yeah i'm and it's low but i just i did not have a good time you know most movies i can at least have a decent time especially like had, a big bombastic superhero film yeah like stuff's blowing up i mean i barely remember what happened in most marvel movies like the avengers movies I can only tell you portions of what occurred because just sure. everything is exploding. This movie, it just, it is so boring and so lifeless and just not worth it. I, I feel like this budget would have been better spent on another Justice League movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, probably so. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty close. I'm going to go higher because my initial, my initial watch through of it, when it was finished, I shrugged my shoulders and I was like, that was fine. So this, this feels like a dead on 50% for me. Like it's, there are elements of it that I enjoyed. 
very small ones, but there were a few. It's relatively competent in its construction. It just, I mean, and like, I mean, shot construction and like what it looks like. Like, it's there yeah, are a like lot of talented technical. people who contributed to this this film. It doesn't look awful, although it doesn't look especially good either. Um, it's just very middle of the road. Like, it's dead middle of the road for me. Like, if you love Wonder Woman, there may be something here for you to enjoy, but you're probably going to be more upset. I think about I what you see uh, her do, yeah. then you would be happy. I think <laughs> I could have gone higher in my score if I hadn't been so offended by the way that they handled the women in a Wonder Woman movie. It's pretty inept. Like you got woman in your title. <laughs> I mean, it's it's widely known that DC is and Warner Brothers really is prone to just straight taking films away from directors in their final cut. It happened with Suicide Squad. There was no rescuing that film, but it happened with Suicide Squad. It, I think it definitely happened here, at least at some phase. It, it feels like a movie chopped up and reassembled over and over and over again. Honestly, the best DC movie up until this point, and I think it's just because it was cheap enough that it flew under the radar, has been Shazam. Like, Shazam is great. <laughs> But it's so silly, and it but it gets the tone right. Like it, it gets the tone. It knows what it needs, and and it's just so. DC movies much seem to be great when they don't care. If it's a yeah. franchise that they think no one cares about and won't make money anyway, just do whatever. Yeah, they're great. But these flagship pieces are just awful. Like yeah. the Superman movies are bad. They're not this bad, but they're bad. Yeah. The new Batman movies are bad. They're not this bad. But then they have this golden opportunity. You know, they had a, a relative success with the first film. They had this golden opportunity. Everyone is at home. Everyone's buying streaming services. They could have knocked this out of the park. And they yeah. yeah. They had all the chances in the world, which I think is where a lot of the vitriol about this film is coming from, is that this is a pretty obvious case where you can see what they could have done. And the fact that they just sort of boffed it is infuriating because it should have been a slam dunk, like the easiest slam dunk in the world, especially with the budget here. They they spent $200 million on this thing. Like it is not, you know, Shazam, I think, had a budget of like 80, 85. And I would watch, I'll, I would go and watch Shazam right now. <laughs> right now. And enjoy myself immensely. I, I will probably, after going through this film with you today, I will probably never watch this movie again. I'll have zero I, desire. I only watched it the, the one time. And I don't think I could watch it again. It just, I kind of get irrationally angry just thinking about it. <laughs> As you should. Being an apex predator yourself. Um, <laughs> my cheetah heals. <laughs> all right dear listener we're gonna wrap up this long episode i'm probably gonna split this into two parts i think i will but um this uh has been our our unfortunate takedown of wonder woman 1984 really um because the more that i i go through it and the more i think about it the angrier and more bewildered i become yeah. uh, not because i i am so beholden to these characters and believe that you know i my vision for them is better but it is this is a clear missed opportunity to take a character that had significant momentum, like really maybe DC's best momentum. And, and they just wasted it. They just squandered it on a, a story that was too complicated, too chopped up, 
to sort of up its own ass, really. Yeah. To to be successful. When a simple, straightforward, fun story with a cool hero being amazing and doing cool things would have been more than enough to to propel this forward. Um, I know you hate the DC shows. I know I mentioned it last week, but uh, Stargirl on the CW is, is you, the production values are still an issue in some ways, although I think they're improving. Um, but that I feel is a better balance of what we've been talking about. Of I think character the shows, work. you know, what's I, that? I think the shows in the, the DC extended universe are, are the best representation of what they have. I am, <laughs> I just have struggles with, my own personal snobbery about television oh, no. um, that I have a hard time getting invested in them. Um, but I, I hope that they stick with the creation of the, the television series because it seems to be the only thing that they are doing right with fans. Yeah. Uh, Greg Berlanti is probably the one most responsible for that. And, and How do I'm I know that name? Um, but yeah, they, they've got to get some fresh blood at DC. Like, Jeff Johns ain't cutting it, man. Like, I don't know what to say. Like, I like Jeff Johns. He's generally a good writer. I, I love his stuff with Green Lantern, but um, I, this isn't working. Like, whatever they're doing is not working. And whatever momentum they garnered with the first Wonder Woman and, and Aquaman, uh, they're teetering on the edge again of, is there even a reason to continue going? And, and that's unfortunate. Because, you know, again, DC characters are some of my favorites. I love them. And, and I want to see them represented on screen. But if this is what we're going to keep getting, then I'm kind of good with them just being done. Yeah. Um, that's how I feel about Batman. Because, I mean, I love Wonder Woman, but Batman is my favorite. Oh, yeah. And it's it's to the point where it's like, well, I've had enough. I, yeah, I think we, we should ones. probably just push back from the table. <laughs> yep, we've had our meal. We've gotten satiated with something. We can go back and watch those without uh, worrying about anything. But we'll see. I don't know. It's it's proven that what Marvel did is more than just a shot in the dark that happened to work. It's somebody, and you know, obviously Kevin Feige, but I'm sure a lot of people working together have been able to make Marvel's system work. And... Warner Brothers just keeps showing us over and over again that it, it it ain't easy. And it's super, super simple to just mess it all up without even a moment <laughs> to realize what you've done. Um, and, so yeah, and, the fact that if this film had been released theatrically, it would have been ultimately destroyed and probably would have made zero dollars. But the fact that it was released on streaming and got them HBO Max money, uh, they'll probably call it a success. And, and that'll be People's expectations are nice and low. Exactly. Right. I'm bored and at home. We'll watch this thing. That's what I did. And well, here we are. <laughs> but all right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, where can you be found on social media, Catherine? I can be found on Twitter at Baskinator. Excellent. I can be found on Twitter at T Baskin. You can get us at FPS Theater on Twitter as a group uh, where I post uh, occasionally, not as often as I should. And uh, then if you need to get a hold of us, you can get us at failure peace at email, uh, failurepeacetheater at gmail.com. All right. Well, have a great week. Uh, again, I'll probably split this into two episodes. So you might hear this uh, outro twice. But uh, thanks for listening to our discussion of Wonder Woman 84. And hopefully we'll get a chance to discuss more recent films that we watch 
the failure piece train derail in real time. <laughs> but we will see you next time.